This is the future, San Dimas, California, 2692. A most excellent society based on the philosophy of the two great ones, Bill and Ted, and the music of their band, the Wild Stallions. My job is to provide the two great ones with the Circuits of Time phone booth, allowing them to travel through time, keeping them on their correct path, a path they must follow to ensure the future of our most excellent society. Society based on the philosophy and lessons learned during Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures. Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures is brought to you by Toyota, reminding you to always buckle up. Do it for those who love you. A civilization dies, and the sectors are born. Each sector comes with his own telebonded insectoid. Now the ultimate battle for survival is in your hands. You control the heroic Pinsor and his attack crawler as he battles evil Skulk and his insectoid. Each warrior and his insectoid tune to each other's thoughts and feelings. You can collect Night Fighting Gargon and all the warriors. Each pair sold separately. Sectors by Coleco. Bill and Ted's excellent invention, take one. <laughs> Auction. Well, wow, well, 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 we got to go back to the future. It's <laughs> a little uh, both. Alternate, a, alternate casting. Well, well, yeah. well what are we doing? I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand here. What, 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 what are you saying? We got to go back. This is confusing. Oh, Bill. Looks, <laughs> it looks like we need to get into the phone booth. Gary, Gary, get Bill, us into the phone booth. I'm Socrates. <laughs> exactly. And I'm Napoleon Bonaparte. <laughs> Hello. Ziggy, My Ziggy. name is Napoleon. Now get the fuck off me, Billy the Kid. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't know. <laughs> now, 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 what's that? What did you say? Well, add, well add James that. Mason's playing uh, Circle K, a.k.a. Rufus. <laughs> Now listen to me, Bill and Ted. You have no and <laughs> he got stuck. What's my line? Okay, I've only line. been brought in for a day. We'll have to uh, add that to our retirement home uh, circuit of uh, stand-up comedy. Our co our convalescent home circuit, where we kill it. It's just it's amazing. Um, no pun intended. That's a bad joke in t these times. Um, welcome to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. We're here. We're in the dog days of summer, 2020, 2020. Uh, I'm D to the Baya, Dion Baya. And over there, I got J to the B. J, Blake. In the house. What's up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, y'all. And you don't stop. We keep rocking the shore shot. We are here, and we're doing a fun, exciting movie for the summer. Uh... Blake, do you know what movie we're doing this year? Uh, <laughs> this, this week? I don't know. Which one did we decide on? Uh, we decided on um, uh, Cross of Iron, <laughs> the World War II, late 70s. <laughs> I kid. I, everyone's like, what? Lady, Lady Hawk. Yeah, we're doing Lady Hawk. We're doing um, uh, 3 O'Clock High. 
classic. Uh, I know, it's a classic movie. <laughs> We're doing Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989. This is one of these movies where I always thought it was 1988. And even though it was supposed to be 88, it was not 88. But I guess since it's fe- it was released in February of 89, maybe that's why I thought the bleed over. I'm still thinking well, they it's 88. S- they say 88 a bunch in the movie, so... Yeah, uh, maybe that's what it is too. They just I, I, even though I saw it in '89, I'm like '88. It's got to be '88. <laughs> uh, you know, that was around the time when we were playing with cops, fighting crime in a future time, and uh, you know, Batman was on the horizon. Uh, Beetlejuice had just come and gone, and this was like when everyone was talking about uh, Batman was coming out, and people were like Michael Keaton as a serious actor. That's hogwash. That's malarkey. And, uh, you know, this is the summer. you got to add this to the summer, you know, the, 1989. You know, soon you're going to have uh, Last Crusade and then Star Trek V. Then Batman opens it up. And then you have a summer of, geez, Lethal Weapon 2. We always do this one. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Uh, Ghostbusters 2, we just realized. A lot of, a lot of good movies in the, in the summer or the year of 89. 89. And this movie came in. Hell of a year. Um, so... Uh, we haven't talked in a while. How are you doing? Everything good since the last time we spoke? Yeah, I'm hanging in there. Finishing, yeah, see, finishing the book. And your beer's getting a little longer. <laughs> getting a little old. Get a lot of gray. Yeah, getting a little old. Yeah, you're man. starting to look like the man. You know that Twilight Zone episode where they have the, the howling man, where they have the man behind the door, and he just has that, that little, and it's the devil, you know, and they're like, why can't you open the door? with the, and then, But he's got a big old beard. The guy, you look like that guy. Getting there. So, yeah, how is the book doing? Speaking of the it's new book, uh, Score to Death 2, conversations with some of Holly, Hollywood's greatest com- <laughs> horror composers. More conversations with some of horror's yes. greatest composers. Uh, it's going good. Fabulous. It's done. I mean, my, pretty much my end of the book is done. It's, uh, we, uh, I went through the, I finished it, I sent it in March. The editor worked on it until recently, a couple weeks ago. He sent me his draft, kind of corrected, trying to fix all my mistakes. <laughs> and then, uh, then I went through his draft, and I made notes, and then we uh, conferred. And uh, then he addressed my notes in the latest draft. And now it's off being typeset. It's at the typesetter. I don't know how the, what the oh, yeah, yeah. terminology is They've to actually make it look like a book. Some- yeah, some guy's putting the you know into the printing machine the little fonts letter by you know. letter. Yeah, you know it's like that's that that's that one. Guy. We we do it really old school at this publisher, the old uh, newspaper way. And you now is and now is the painstaking uh, process of going around and trying to think of celebrities and trying to figure out how to contact them so that I can beg them to write something like a blurb or the forward to the book. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. And from what you told me behind the scenes, it sounds very exciting. Yeah, potentially. You're talking to we'll some see. people. Yeah. We'll see. Let's, let's uh, as uh, Harvey Keitel said in Pulp Fiction, let's not start sucking each other's dicks quite yet. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that's horrendously disgusting sounding if there's any children listening. But listen, fingers, cross, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Uh, sweet. That's very good. Good, good. That's and, nice. Nice. Yourself. You're, you're injured. Uh-uh. I am injured, yeah. I've, I was shooting a movie recently, and then I ended up uh, breaking my clavicle and doing a scene that was just silly. Um, the old, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was doing a car scene. Yeah, we could talk about that near the end of the, the, the podcast. And then I uh, d- 
did a little stunts because I was surrounded by legendary stuntmen. I was like, I got to do my own stunts. Come on. And then I end up hurting myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's why they're stuntmen. That's why they're stuntmen. You know, I've always, you remember in college, I'd always do the stunts. Marissa Wu had me get hit by her Saturn six times and she didn't even use the footage. You know, or there was one where I was falling down. You remember, was it Mike Morona's thing where, remember the um, mail room and there was the steps at college down to like the, the hidden passageways? Yeah. Those long steps. I like fell down those steps three times for somebody's like weekend video. Um, so I've always done physical stuff. And this was kind of stupid. You know, I, when I rolled, I should have just put my arm out, but it happened so quick. But I was only able to just throw my shoulder out. And then I the biggest rolled over, came up fine. The biggest difference was that was 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, when I was, I was telling my wife when, the, day, the night before, you know, about, oh, I'm doing all. Because I, I was doing a scene with this guy, Jack Gill, who's like a legend. Jack Gill. Uh, he was in the Dukes of Hazard. He did all the car, st- a lot of the car stuff there. He did Knight Rider, and then he went on to do all these feature films, uh, including Terminator Two. He did all the T one thousand motorcycle stuff, or when the T one thousand was hanging on the back of the cop car after they break out of the asylum. Uh, he did the Fast and the Furious movies, I think like five through seven now. So he's got some real serious street cred. So he's doing this this turn in this car, and I'm sitting shotgun. So, you know, uh, why am I saying all this? So I was, doing, I was doing action kind of stuff. So the day before, I told, I told my wife when we were rehearsing, she's like, you know, Dion, you're not 16 anymore. You know, you, you know, just remember that. You're not a kid. I'm like, I am a kid because in our <laughs> minds, you know, we're still 16 yeah. years old. So, uh, yeah, and then I ended up uh, doing it, and, and I did the take 10 times fine, but then the car we were driving, it has no roof, no door. It's been beat up, hit, smashed, so it's really on its last leg, so it kept stalling on us, and we'd come and do this turn, and we'd skid to a stop, so uh, it had stalled, and they were trying to get it started, and it had rained a little bit, just like drizzled spit, and then when we did the take again, it got a little slippery, and I was coming over the dashboard, just walking over, jumping over the hood, and running down that way, so the first time I did it, I slipped, because I'm in cowboy boots, and I fell, which was like a pratfall on the hood, and everyone's like, wow, geez, you hurt yourself? I was like, no, that was planned, you know, so I felt cool. So we did it a second time, and I did the exact same thing. But as I got up and pushed off, I slipped on the bumper of the car, and I came off head first. And, Blake, you know how big my head is. Yeah. I suddenly lost my, uh, the gravitational pull of the earth. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> leaned right way. So I went head first, and I couldn't regain. And, and at the idea, at the, the second, it's funny how these things happen so slowly, I thought I was going to just run to the car nearby and grab and hold on. But I quickly realized that wasn't going to happen. So... Instead of face planting, I just rolled, but I didn't have time to put my arm out, so I rolled and hit my shoulder first. Came right up fine. Everyone, you know, thought it was all right. And then, then I did two more takes because, like I said, there was all these other. There's another guy, Lance Turner, there, who's a legendary stunt man. Dukes of Hazard. He's the guy who drove the um, the the generally over a barn. They put nitro in the damn thing. And then I was like, "Did you land on anything?" It's like, "No, we didn't land on anything. We just landed down. A, you know, come on. He flat. You know, pancaked the car. We were fine." Yeah. And then another guy, Ted Barba, who. Um, was, uh, you know, did a lot of the jumps for Point Break and all this. He was Scott Bakula's double in um, the NCIS New Orleans show uh, and did a lot of other really cool stunts. He was there, too, so I had to act like I knew what I was doing, so I got up and I was fine. Yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, so you're right. Getting back to, yeah, I, I, I'm one-armed. It, it's my dominant arm, so luckily now, you know, with everything else going on, I'm able to relax and uh, chill with it, but... um that's fun. And then the book's been delayed a little bit because talking with the publisher, I guess, because of everything going on with COVID, um, 
uh, all the books that were supposed to come out in the spring now and everything were delayed in the, this past winter. So they're all now rescheduled for the fall. So instead of trying to race and then co- compete with all those people who are probably much more, uh, you know, popular and noticeable than I am, we figure we'll put it out at the beginning of 2021 and maybe even have a hardcover edition. So it's pushed back a couple months, which isn't that bad because, like you know, it gives you more time to, to cross your T's and dot your I's. Yeah. So that's uh, my book, which is a new fiction. Uh, so that's, but it's exciting, right? We both got stuff coming out in the pipeline. Yeah. Uh, I, sh- I should be in this movie, should be out by the end of the year, and I could talk briefly about it at the end of the podcast. So, um, but yeah, we're going way down the alley, as we always say here, and we're, we're, we're segueing back to 1989, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, did you see this in the theater? I did not. I don't remember how I saw it. Probably rented it. I saw the sequel in the theater. And if we ever get around to doing Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, I can talk about that experience. But I do have to say that I haven't been as excited to do a movie in a long time. I've been wanting to do this movie since we started the podcast way back yeah, in you were s- 2014. Is that when we started doing this? Is this been on one the list of one of the ones uh, that you know since the beginning inception of the cast up yeah. there with Darby O'Gill and Little People? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just absolutely love this movie. There's like, yeah, it makes me laugh every time I watch it, and every time I see it on TV, I, it's one of those movies that I'll stick around and I'll watch at least for a little while. I just uh, yeah. I have a, a a lot of fondness for this movie. I think it, uh, I think it succeeds in what it's whatever it's trying to do. I think I think it's successful. It's doing it, doing it. I don't it think well. it's inter- I don't think it's uh, incredibly ambitious in its goals, but I don't think that's a bad thing. I think sometimes you you set your goals and you and you swing for the fences with it, and uh, and you can you can hit hit the homer. And for me, this movie is top notch. Is it? It's a it's a line drive right down the center that gets three <laughs> runners in as well. Maybe even get you grand slam. Yeah. I just want, wow! Just, Remember just, that Nintendo game? I mean, just watching it earlier, I, I just, I just think it's funny. I think it's funny. I think everybody's really good in it, including, yeah, you know, uh, Keanu and and Alex Winter, but uh, all the people that play the, you know, Socrates and Beef Oven, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And just the dialogue, it's very it's a clever script. This is Socrates Johnson, uh Bob Gangus Khan. <laughs> like, it just makes me laugh. I don't know why. It makes me happy this movie. Um I saw it I saw it in the movies, but what it ended up happening was I went my friend Martin and his mother took us, and for some reason, if I remember correctly, I think his mother thought that the movie was starting at a different time. So when we got there, it had already started, and we're like, we're going to go in anyway. Or, but I do remember on the way knowing that we were late. So maybe we discovered, you know, uh, we started off late when we were looking in the newspaper. So when we got there, I remember we walked in right when Rufus was talking to them at the Quickie Mart. So I checked the timestamp this viewing, and we were like 13 or 14 minutes in. We had missed, so we missed the whole setup and opening. So... <laughs> Uh, uh, for me, and you know how I am, I'm such a stickler with movies, and I like to see, you know, especially something I've never seen. It threw me off my game as a as a nine year old, so I didn't really uh, identify with the movie as much because I was so like, "What the hell is going on?" And it's just so weird. So uh, 
I didn't see this one too many times, but then I saw Bo- Bogus Journey in the theater, and I like Bogus Journey a lot, and I've seen that a couple times, but then that said, I haven't seen either one of these movies in at least 25 years. Uh, Bogus Journey, probably a little more, a little more recently, but yeah. you know, probably at least 20 years. I don't think I've seen Bogus Journey since I saw it in the movie theater. Yeah, I think I might have seen it one more time when it came out on video because I was a huge William Sadler fan. So yeah. I was like, oh, you know, William Sadler's in this. So I watched <laughs> it a couple more times because William Sadler was in it. Yeah. And, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, they, to them, to me, they've always been kind of stupid. And it, but, but it's funny now watching it this time around with the adult perspective on that, like, oh, you know, it's, it's like what we'll get into in the, in the talking about it, that they're, they are sincere. They are lovable. Yeah. They're not... Uh, mean in any kind of way to either each other or to anybody else. So you can't help but love them. So I think this viewing really endeared me more to their characters because at the end of the day, they are just nice guys who yeah. are, you know, they're like, they're like you and I. I was thinking, yeah, exactly. They're innocent. And I was thinking, you and I, this could have been a great uh, costume for us to rock at a Halloween party. <laughs> Put you it know? on the list. You could have went as Ted, and you could, and I could go as Bill, and I'll curl my hair up, I'll blonde it a little bit, and uh, you grow your hair out, yeah. you know, and then there you go. We'll get you like so, an Ed Norton kind of a vest. So far on the list, we have uh, Stallone and, Bob and Billy D. Williams from Nighthawks. Yeah. <laughs> Might be a little we controversial got, uh, these days for Dion to play <laughs> Billy D. Williams. But, <laughs> but I'm getting into the role. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, we got it's, Bill and Ted. Uh, Bill and got, Ted. We got Burt Reynolds and Jerry Reed from Smoking and the Bandit. Yeah, you yeah. playing the Bandit, me playing uh, the Snowman, uh, Cletus so. Snow. Um, and play. then I thought we had another one. Uh, one of these days we'll have to. Uh, well, Cagney like- and Lacey. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. That's a good one. Yeah, exactly. That's for the drag night. We could do uh, Andy you know. and uh, what's his name? Do I- Don Knotts. Don Knotts, yeah. <laughs> Nip it in the butt. Nip it. <laughs> Nip it. That's a great one. That's funny. And then, you know, um, uh, we'll get out my dog, Babe, and we'll give him a fishing rod, and he could be little uh, Ron Howard. Uh, Classic. Yeah, so we can do it on the list. You know? We'll start cosplaying. Yeah, we got to... We'll, we'll be like I've seen old, some crazy cosplays lately. We'll be the, we'll go to Comic Con San Diego whenever uh, Comic Con starts up again, just so that we can cosplay shit that nobody there's gonna know. <laughs> you mean like like this movie? No, they know Bill and Ted. They would know Bill and cosplay Ted, but I don't think Andy you're gonna know Stallone and, um, and Billy D. Williams. But yeah, uh, it's well, you know, I've or, seen or somebody sent me a picture recently of Ralph Cramden and uh, Ed Norton. <laughs> And see, there you go. I, I, I want, you wonder if people, I, I, I'd assume people would know that. I've seen some weird ones because where I was at, I've seen like, uh, you know, people doing like Jackie Gleason or Burt Reynolds recently for Smoking the Bandit. But someone sent me one of uh, a guy doing Maximilian Shell from The Black Hole. And he's, he's got the outfit, the beard, and then he has behind him Maximilian, the robot. And I don't know if that's just something, maybe he just wheels it around like it's one of those... Um, you know the mannequins you can the 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 people for fashion design. You yeah, know, yeah, it's one of those mannequins I can just on wheels I can just push around. So like I I do like when there is uh people who are able to to pull stuff out of their ass and do like an unknown. So if we're going there dressed as uh you know or, or Gomer Pyle or something or you know <laughs> whatever classic. Or we're doing the we're doing the Ghostbusters live action seventy show with Forrest Tucker and uh, what's his name that's still alive. Um, uh, oh darn it! 
Uh, he's in everything. Uh, he's in Kolchak. He's in. He's he's from F Troop as well. Um, oh darn! But anyway, yeah, we just see if people would recognize us, and maybe each day we'll change our look up, and that's how incognito will go. That's a really good idea. People may not realize that, like you know, we go and we just show up, and we're like you know, I don't know, Terminator and Kyle Reese. <laughs> but hanging you know, out, whatever. Yeah, alternate Joe alternate Pat, universe. Joe Piscopo and Eddie Murphy. So anyway, Joe Piscopo but, um, and Treat Williams. Now there's a there's a good one. Dead Heat. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> idea. Yeah, you, you'd have to. Who I don't know who'd be who. I was gonna say you, you'd have to be the Jack guy. You'd be uh, Joe Piscopo, and I'd have to be like. Oh, we flip, we'll treat. flip a coin. <laughs> Every day. How about we reverse it? So one day we'll go and then we'll, we'll you know. So anyway, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So this is a, another weird one because I never saw a lot of Alex Winter after he did this. Uh, I was an MTV fan around this time and afterward going into high school. So uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, he used to host Liquid Television. Is that the show he used to host? That used to have all those great avant-garde um, short animations uh, it was on like on a saturday night really late at night and uh it was this fabulous show and you've seen some bits of it remember they used to have that there was a guy who did, did a series called like stick figure theater and it was they look like they're on index cards and he like he'd take night of the living dead animate it and he'd take the audio from the movie uh, and it'd be the set the scene where ben's yelling about the cellar or upstairs or there's another one where there's madonna from vogue yeah uh, those were from there eon flux was from there uh, there's a couple shows that actually got um, birthed out of that show, but I thought he used to do that, maybe. Well, he um, uh, he appeared on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers because he's in The Lost Boys. Yeah, he's, and that's right before this, isn't it? He's one of The Lost Boys, but he went on to um, direct at some point. I know that. Like, he directed Freaked, which would be a wow. really weird movie for us to do. <laughs> which, yeah. was a, which was a movie that uh, my friend's really liked in high school and uh so i i would watch that with them frequently and then he um he started directing some documentaries like he has a documentary that just came on hbo right now called showbiz kids which is about like being a child actor and stuff and uh so he's done a bunch of documentaries he did a documentary about frank zappa uh, nice stuff like that so he went so that was the way he wanted to go right because then he directed the music video for um the song that appears in here was the extreme maybe he did their their a video for them afterwards. So I guess that was the where he kind of wanted to go, right? Maybe do music videos and into directing. I guess, yeah. Clearly, he he wanted to go behind the scenes, so that's what he did. Yeah. So and I only saw that. him on that MTV show after that, and then he kind of you know I lost him until Bogus Journey, and then after that I haven't seen him again since, like you said. I think uh, the only movie I can have, that you can remind me of that I can remember would be Lost Boys that yeah. he's in. And then that other guy that he's with, what's his name? Keanu. Reeves, he didn't. Really um, do, he didn't really do much yeah. after this either. Yeah, re- related to uh, Christopher Reeve and George Reeves. George <laughs> Reeves. No, that's that's a lie. Uh, Keanu, uh, and this was, the, I think, the movie that introduced me to Keanu Reeves at the moment. And then uh, it was this, and then after th- I didn't. When I was little, I didn't see My Own Private Idaho. I didn't see um, what's the movie where he gets uh, the girl pregnant. Is that Parenthood? He is in Parenthood, but I yeah, haven't seen I it he, forever. I, I, I think he gets his the girl he's dating pregnant in it, and that's the thing. So I, I hadn't seen those movies until I was a little older. So it was this, and then probably maybe after this was Point Break was the next thing I saw him in before Bogus Journey. 
Yeah. And speed, speed. of course, you know. <laughs> yeah. Kind of put him over the edge for us. So, um, uh, and then I didn't also know at the time who George Carlin was because I was a Bill Cosby kid. So I came from the other spectrum of listening to Cosby's records and growing up with Cosby. So uh, this was my first introduction to George Carlin, which some people may think is sacrilege too, because you know George Carlin was such a huge comedian for our generation for his stand-up and stuff. Well, I mean, really, I think he's more of a comedian for the generations before us than ours. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, guess you know he started as you said before, yeah. and then <laughs> he was on continuing the through us. Show, so. Yeah. Yeah, he doing the weather forecasts and stuff and from the 60s into the 70s. I guess him being the heir of Richard Pryor, Cosby, those guys. Um, and then, uh, sadly, he passed away some years ago. But I don't know nowadays if younger people might know who he is. It's kind of like Sam Kennison dying tragically young. And then, you know, do people still know who he is aside from our age group or older? Yeah. So, uh, but I think he's great in this too. And then, you know, it's just, it's just fun all around all the little stuff. And, and then I commented to you before the show started, we were started recording that I didn't realize how low budget the movie was when you're watching it. Yeah. But I think they do a good job with it, you know, like, yeah, obviously when you're kids, you don't really think about that kind of thing. You know, at least I didn't. That's a, (laughs) I got my book out. Like, (laughs) look at this, look at the cutting corners left and right. This is bullshit. This is the deal, dealer. Right, this film I could tell. <laughs> but uh, you know, the, the effects were decent. You know, the uh, the flying through space or through the circuits of time. Those are all. Oh yeah, it's great. I don't think you notice it, and then I think they use the money in the right place so that you know uh, when you when they're having that CG stuff, it looks it looks fabulous. And then you know when you get down to certain locations, you don't realize that they're not doing huge wide shots or yeah. whatever, or that they're in Italy. You know, so or yeah. Arizona for that matter. I think so you know I th- one of the things that I think maybe uh, endears this movie to me is that it checks off some boxes of like genres, subgenres that I like, which is like kind of. I mean, they're not little kids, but they're still like teen kids on an adventure. That's that's a big one for me. There's a clock, although the clock doesn't really make sense that they have to <laughs> they have to get it all done by the time it's the report, but they have a time machine, so. I don't know why, you know, some of the some of the stuff about the time travel doesn't make sense to me. But I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not a stickler, so I'm willing to go no for go with it. Uh, yeah, the comedy duo, which is, I, you know, more the kind of comedy duo that you and I would do when we would try to be funny, which is that we're both stupid. <laughs> we wouldn't try; we would succeed. That's another thing we could do, instead though. We could straight, be like instead of the straight man and the goofy one, we're just both kind of stupid. Yeah, I was going to say we could do uh, Abbott and Costello, you know, or Martin and Lewis. That could be but cosplay. The, but there's definitely, but there's like there's the straight man, and but whenever we would be in in student films and stuff together, and and asked, to we be would funny. straight off who the straight man is and who the you know, and we we knew each other so well that. I would play the straight man in a scene. You know, I mean, we would swap roles as we were acting, you know, which I think is fun to do that. Yeah. You know, uh, that's like almost just, the modern equivalent. of. And uh, just, you're right. You don't, you're, you don't really get that much yeah. anymore. That, that, that's also just a really, uh, I don't know. It's just a really clever idea. You know, it's, it's, it's very clear cut, you know, script wise, like what the needs and the wants are. Like they need to pass their history exam. <laughs> like, 
that their pre- history presentation. It's clear cut. We know what the stakes are. They're going to fail, but not only will they fail, but they'll be separated because Ted's got to go to military school in Alaska, in Alaska if they fail. So we get. It seems we, like a bit late by then, you know, because he's already <laughs> at the end of high school. It's like you should have sent him a little earlier. We get the but. stakes right up front in like the first couple of minutes. We know what the stakes are, and then it's and it's all. for me. Not to cut you off, but th- the stakes are incredible because that is an incredibly frightening final exam that you have to go up in the auditorium and read it at the assembly hall you know so that i can i can completely understand why they're scared to go do that yeah yeah and uh and like we were saying earlier with with the characters themselves being like kind of innocent and i think one of the you know if you watch if you look around or you watch the blu-ray and you find stuff you can find stuff about the writers talking about them and one thing that they pointed out that was so uh, endearing about the characters for them to write. And one of the things that they really liked about those characters, and we can talk about how those characters were created uh, because it's actually pretty interesting, is that they are kind of innocent and they're just good guys and that they will, they treat everybody the same. So if whether they're talking to Socrates or to like, you know, somebody else in San Dimas, like it, there's Misty. something, there's something very, uh, there's just something very nice about that, you know, about seeing these these two guys, you know, going back in time and be like, you know, we're with you, Mr. The Kid, you know, <laughs> you know, just like having those interactions are are just a, a delight to watch because you see yeah. these uh, got these two guys and, you know, the director talks about his biggest, you know, a direction for them was always like you know, more puppy factor because he thought of them as being like big Labrador retrievers, just like they love everybody. They're, they're totally innocent and all, and all of their intent, you know, no matter yeah. what they're doing, it's pure. And so his big thing would be like, just give me more puppy. And then they would understand that that meant like really be, you know, just those pure, lo- yeah, be pure. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that really works, and that's almost a saving grace here because if you watch it nowadays with a cynical kind of view, it's almost like a microcosm of today where they a lot of the criticisms of young people today that they don't know their history. And here are two guys who these characters don't know their history, and then they go through it, and they kind of still don't know their history. And one of the earlier concepts of the script, which I thought would have been brilliant, kind of like time banditsy, is that when they go through history, they're actually messing history up. They're the ones that get the Hindenburg, uh, you know, to blow up and burst into flames or sink the Titanic. And uh, I find that very funny because it, it seemed so... Once you go back to the Napoleon se- sequence and Rufus is like, you guys are on your own, goodbye. It doesn't really explain anything to him. You just realize how inherently dangerous this all is. <laughs> and at any moment, they could just destroy, you know, and then... They're just so laissez-faire about it, you know, where it's like, ah, don't worry about it. It'll be fine. And then, you know, they bumble their way through time. So you can very easily see them being at every disaster and, you know, huge human disaster in yeah, history because totally. they're, you know, they're the ones causing it. But it's a very different movie. I mean, it's, a, it's an undoubtedly hilarious movie. Yeah. But it's a very different yeah. concept. I mean, and the fact well, that they don't, there isn't that like butterfly effect where they, yeah, you exactly, know, yeah. <laughs> where they just they set things and train reaction is amazing. But it also goes to yeah. the whole thing that I was saying earlier, which is that the time stuff doesn't the way time travel works there is like, 
you know, some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't. Like George Carlin is coming from the future that they've already established to make sure that they don't fail their history ex- uh, presentation. But obviously they don't or else the future he's coming from wouldn't already exist. So, <laughs> you know, so there's just... Uh, it's a little it, redundant. Yeah, yeah you, you, just yeah, have it, to, it, you just have to go with yeah. it and kind of not think about it too much. Well, I think their saving grace is that they are so lovable and so innocent. And even if you watch it by, again, today's standards, it almost seems like they're almost on the spectrum, the two of these guys, because they're just <laughs> yeah. so like, duh, duh. Because even Duncan, the brother, the little brother doesn't seem like this. So it's like it does seem like the two of them should be in some sort of remedial level, something, and, you know, pe- life is just too hard for them, you know? Maybe that yeah. the only, you know, the Maybe autism, the, is the, the Asperger's wrong. syndrome. They're on the wrong educational course, I agree. Yeah, if they were into if they were into special ed, they would realize that it's music that's their talent, and it's the music that they have to cultivate. And uh, you don't know what if what comment this is of their future. That what happened in the world that only survived maybe was the Wild Stallions album and stuff like that. So for all you know. You know, if there was like a Terminator post-apocalyptic war was the only, you know, it's like it's a little bit of the galaxy quest kind of a thing. Is it the only thing that was left was the wild stallions and that's why they based the civilization onto them? Or as they, I guess, hint to in the movie, is it so um, grandiose and so transcendental their music that it does change the course of all of our planet Earth? So um, it's quite interesting. But I think that they save it being so, um, it's, they come off as, um, hugely moronic, but then when you listen to them talk, they do seem to have a. It is. It does go back to that almost vaudevillian kind of a a shtick where um, I don't know. You'd see that a lot when 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 people were doing different race comedy, where um, especially say with blackface, you'd see people doing a lot of. Uh, offensive stuff, say, in the presence of another race. But then if a white person would leave and another person of the same race was there, they'd be a lot more intelligent, but they just played up. You know, you, you know what I mean? When, I'm, so when the two of them are together, Bill and Ted, you kind of see that you know, they, they do say a lot of smart things yeah. in, in very elegant ways, you know, w- along with the parlance of dude and bro and all that surfer stuff. But uh, they don't really realize how smart they are, which yeah. is in a weird way. Bill and Ted, specifically. Yeah, so I do like that th- there is an evolution of that vaudevillian kind of a, you know, sh- feel. You know, the idiot. Yeah, yeah. They definitely they they are intelligent. They're just intelligent yeah. in their own way, almost like in a spiritual and like philosophical way. They're intelligent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's why smart. they they adhere to like Socrates or so- how do they call them? Socrates. 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 You know. Well, yeah, I mean, so there, there's that, uh, and they're like self-aware, which yeah. is interesting because there's that moment where uh, Bill is reading out of the book that like the only thing that's certain is you know that's that's certain is that we, you know we know nothing, and Ted's like that's us, dude. <laughs> like they kind of realize that they don't really know anything. Yeah, and which is and also, they're kind of at the. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Which is just part of that, part of that, like in, that intelligence that you're talking about, which is like a unique brand of intelligence. Yeah, it's like the, it's like they're they're at the mercy of the writer's whim, and then luckily they don't do anything. They don't have they don't have that 
cliched, you know, where they're mean to somebody in particular. Like, I like the, it does adhere again to that innocence of, it even draws back to earlier cinema, like the 30s and 40s, where you have these characters that are just very polite, very nice. But then it's funny, you do have the 80s tropes that are kind of injected in because it was, to, it is from the 80s where you have the hot mom and there's there's the Oedipus kind of uh, ancestral yeah. um, uh, suggestion, even to the part where I never, see, I never got when I was little. It's like the the father who's married to to was it Mindy or Misty Missy M- Mitzi Mitzi. Um, she's the one that uh, to t- to me it's 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 he's almost culpable Missy. He's almost culpable the father because he's like they need to stay and study. But since the dad is like is as into her as they are, he's giving them money to just to go out to the market and he's gonna just bang her in their room. <laughs> it's like you know, it's like, and she's into yeah, it. So yeah. you, I don't remember Bogus Journey or the comic book or the TV show. I read the comic. Um, I watched a little of the cartoon. I never watched a live action show, so I don't know if there's any kind of backstory introduced of. Um, where the father did you end up reading the novelization there's not i don't think there is one for this movie there is one for bogus okay. journey but i do remember what you the, have i could be wrong but i do like i said i haven't seen bogus journey since i was theaters but in my recollection she leaves bill's dad and then hooks up with ted's dad bogus journey for the sequel yeah oh, that's, that's my funny. recollection i yeah. could be wrong yeah Oh, I think you might be right because i do remember there's interaction between keanu and her in the in the other movie um, but her, his, Bill's father kind of looks like a teacher. Yeah. So I almost thought he came from academia, and that's maybe how he snatched her up. No yeah, pun yeah. intended. Was you know, you know, like at col- school, and then he's he a college her. professor. That she yeah. was like a freshman in college or something. Because yeah, and then he got her. But even that stuff is like a perfect example of you know why I think the script is so great. Just like some of the dialogue is just it's just clever and funny and, and not clever in like a smart way, but clever in that like the fact that you would put it in there kind of way, which is, you know, when they're like leaving the school and uh or when it was, it's one of the first times we see Missy and uh and Ted is to, goes to Billy's like, yo, remember when we were freshmen and she was a senior? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, shut up, Ted. He's like, shut up, dude. He's like, remember when I asked yeah. her to prom? <laughs> he's like, shut up, Ted. <laughs> like that, those are lines that like don't, they're not furthering the story. I mean, they are creating a little bit of exposition for the relationship uh, that they have with Missy. But like, they're just funny. And like the, re- the way Keanu delivers them and the way uh, Alex Winter respond, uh, reacts to them, it's just... It's not like, you know, look, it's not like high comedy. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, like Howard Hawksian, you know, written dialogue. <laughs> we're not talking about bringing no, up Frank Capra stuff. Which is, you know, bring up baby Zany yeah. in, its, in its own way. but uh, Or any kind of super intelligent comedy. But it's just perfect for, for like, the tone of this movie. and uh, It's almost ad-libs, you know? Yeah, it very well could be. Like, there's a... There's a thing that I always thought was funny and then as you research you find out like this was something that Keanu and and uh, Alex Winter came up with which is when they're leaving the school to get into the car with Missy and Alex and all B- Bill has in his hand is like the assignment and Ke- and Ted's got all the books he's carrying all the books and it's just it's a funny visual and that, I guess that was something that the two of them came up with going into the scene like hey this would be funny and it's like it's completely throwaway. There's no, 
there's nothing. But it, there's so much imp- implication there. It's almost like they went to the library. He's looking at the paper, and he's taking the books out, <laughs> at, giving it to Keanu to hold as he's holding the paper. And that's something you and I would do. Yeah. And I come out with, carrying all these books, and you'd have the paper. And then they don't think twice about it because they're concentrated on what they're doing. You know, and that goes towards the innocence of their characters. Where yeah, they're just yeah. like, you know, he's not trying to get him to do it, to carry it, because he doesn't want to carry it. It's just that they're so focused on this task. Um, and there's a lot of that in here, which is funny. And, um, you know, it, and I think this also, uh, for people who are younger than us, too, um, certainly my introduction to, like, California surfers and stuff, pre-Ninja Turtles and stuff like that, was, like, Nintendo skateboarding for me was on the horizon, but there was, like, those... Uh, you know, there was there was like Nintendo games like Rat. I forget the names of them, but you could skateboard and stuff. Yeah. But it was the first these this these <coughs> characters these characters for the first time. I think kind of like introduced me to like that spacey like. And there's never any implication here that they're doing drugs no. or drinking or whatever or getting high like you get like in Dazed and Confused. It's more of like just they're just like their heads in the clouds literally no the only and, implication um, you get is like when they're going the back of the old west they're like dude we didn't even, they didn't even cart us we should remember this place oh yeah, the saloon. <laughs> yeah exactly which is even funny it's like they're just so <laughs> inept um but it's it's funny because it just gives you like a uh this was my first introduction to like dude bruh you know and that that venice beach kind of like skater surfer yeah. look that was cultivating since the 70s you know and people doing skateboarding in underground pools that were empty you know it has that whole that whole california yeah. upbringing of the 70s that yeah you know, we didn't experience because we were on the east coast i don't think our generation fa- i mean at least my friends and i and and the way you're talking i assume you like we for the most part i don't think the people that were our age found like fast times of ridgebound high until until we were a little bit older until we were like yeah into our high tweens into our teens did we discover that movie because that movie also has you know on top of the comedy and the coming of age that we expect in a, in a, in a teen comedy especially in the late 70s and, and in, into the 80s there's also some pretty heavy adult themes going on in that with abortion and whatnot but like we didn't you know so i'm with you like i didn't i i was introduced to it through bill and that kind of speech and that kind of behavior through Bill and Ted, yeah. not through Spicoli, <laughs> you know, yeah. which is character. interesting because my, my, my Martin, who I mentioned before, his brothers were older. They were of the high school age. So when I met him, I was immediately introduced to hair metal and Iron Maiden, Skid Row, Kiss, all these, these posters, Eddie from Iron Maiden and who he was. And Martin's brothers dressed like this. And then because of them, stuff slipped off of them that we were introduced to. And, uh, I know that they would say I knew what Fast Times at Ridgemont High was, but for me, I think I wasn't into the, I wasn't of age yet to get the sex comedy or the drug comedy. I more liked the movies that played like The Warriors or Three O'clock High or the one where um, I can never remember where they took the, at the end in California they take the school over at the PTA meeting the kids. Um, I like that kind of stuff because you know I wasn't digging on girl jokes yet about sex i mean i knew i got big boobs or a butt you know that was it like the coolie but like i wasn't <laughs> thinking about you know yeah. like actual intercourse or whatever because i didn't you know who, you, you don't know at that age especially from our generation you can't google it so like uh it's funny so i would you know i didn't necessarily gravitate towards fast times either because it just didn't interest me and that might be me talking this out now in our therapy session i might realize now why maybe i didn't really go for a lot of the um 
uh, what's his name, uh, who passed away, who did uh, The Breakfast Club. Oh, John Hughes? Yeah, maybe that's why I didn't really go towards a lot of those John Hughes movies because I just wasn't interested in like that those relationships where I was more interested in was in you know James Bond or or, or whatever the hell was popular at the time for Action Kid you know yeah. so this was comedy for me but it wasn't you know they're not trying to be dirty you know they 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 do like girls and they want to get the girl or they like you know they they have aspirations but I do like that you could put this on for a for a child yeah. of any age, literally, and there's not really any. You don't have to worry about oh, they got to fast forward that scene or whatever, which is important, I think, nowadays certainly. Well, definitely. I mean, their aspirations with the princess are of a romantic nature, not really of a sexual <laughs> nature. Yeah, of like kissing, which is I, it's so admirable. It brings you back. I mean, literally. <laughs> Talking this out now, we can literally take these two characters. And you can put them back in any era, uh, era of movies. <laughs> like you know, these these could be the Bowery Boys. You know, this yeah. this could be whatever the heck it is, the Dead End Kids. Or you can have them be like, they can have a whole series of you know, like Francis the Mule kind of movies and stuff. And so it would be interesting to do a stage play and have them be different in different eras because they are so uh, iconic. You know, they, it doesn't necessarily. I mean, I guess you do need the bro and the dude and the awesome and the triumphant, but yeah, yeah. it'd be funny seeing them in a different context. And I guess the inception of them, uh, one of the, the biggest things for me in researching this, which was mind-blowing, is that the writers, the writers, I'm all of a sudden doing walking, <laughs> um, Ed Solomon and Chris Matheson. Chris Matheson is the son of legendary Richard Matheson, yeah. who we talk about all the time on this podcast. And uh, Chris says that, uh, his father who um, that they were trying like you said that there's a lot of stuff that really isn't explained with the parlance and the timeline of the time travel but that I wonder could be reason because Chris Matheson says since he his father is such a legend in sci-fi and horror that they were trying to kind of not make this movie such a sci-fi movie because he didn't want to kind of tread in his dad's territory and they wanted to kind of make it more of this adventure. So maybe that's why they left some of these items ambiguous. But it was Richard Matheson who, when they were talking about things and developing skits, uh, and I guess his son Chris ran this by them, this sketch that uh, Richard, the father, was like, oh, that's a movie right there. I want to, you know, and the, he, that was the impetus maybe for them to even like just fl- flesh this out. Yeah. Which is fascinating. You know, Richard gave us kind of this vicariously. So I guess. By having Chris. <laughs> <laughs> so Chris Matheson and, and Ed Sullivan, they were friends. I guess they met in their 20s. I don't know if it was in college or around college. Or late age. teens. They, uh, they met, they became friends, and uh, they would go on to continue to write Chris Matheson less so in movies where he, he, he and Ed Solomon wrote Bogus Journey but and uh and they uh they co-wrote Mom and Dad Save the World but uh and Chris Matheson went on to write uh, Mr. Wrong uh and then they both co-wrote uh, the the upcoming or or new depending on when you listen to this uh, Bill and Ted face the music, but Ed Solomon seems to uh, have had more of a career in film and television. He worked on Laverne and Shirley. He went on to be oh, nice. Of, he went on to be one of the writers of the It's Gary Shandling show, which I remember fondly from our childhood. That uh, was a huge show for us. That was pre Seinfeld. That was kind of the first show for me. That was like adult comedy. Yeah, you know, I remember everyone used to always talk about Larry Shandling and how, you know, that was the show to watch and. 
you know that's that brings me back <laughs> yeah he uh he was one of the writers on the, the super mario brothers movie uh, uh, uh this is uh matheson or solomon solomon uh okay. men in black uh the 2000 charlie's angels movie and that was good. uh those two movies that came out a few years ago, uh, Now You See Me and Now You See Me Too, which are like illusionists pulling heists with... Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. So he, he went Never on to, of to work a lot and, and maybe even beforehand with Laverne and Shirley. But they, uh, they were friends and they had a group of friends that apparently they would rent a space. Well, hold on. Before you go on, Laverne and Shirley, wasn't that already on in the late 70s into the 80s? Yeah, I guess he got the job really early on i don't know if he was one i don't think he was one of the originators but laverne and shirley was on for a long time so he might he might have signed on after laverne and shirley had moved to california from milwaukee <laughs> oh because i thought they would have been canceled by the late 80s um i guess no, i don't know is, what time frame he, he did this before he did bill and ted oh i know that but i but i'm just i wonder what the age range is then how old are they him to get a job and then they met in college so this is i guess earlier on i thought they were around in their tw- you know in their twenties or mid twenties by the time they do this no I think they were in but, their late twenties to thirty thirties ah when they that, did okay this. that then that I no that resets the time because they talk about how Ed Sullivan already had an agent uh, by the time they wrote Bill and Ted because I because he had worked in television uh, beforehand so he had an agent so they took them they took the script to his agent and the agent's like uh, yeah look no we're never gonna sell this movie. <laughs> Uh, so it's a they, hard move. It's a hard sell. So then they went and tried to sell it on their own. But uh, how the characters originated were uh, was that they would get together with their friends uh, while they were in their twenties, and uh, they would rent a space in California where I guess it was like I don't know. It was it was like twenty five dollars for an hour or something, and so they would each chip in five bucks, and they would get the space, and it was just like five friends. And they would do improvisational comedy together, not not for an audience. They would just do it to have fun and to maybe work things out that they were working on, but mostly just to kind of hang out and uh, have a good time. Kind of, I guess, the kind of way that like you and I and our generation, we get the video camera out and do stuff with our friends when we were in our teens. They would go yeah. and, and run out of the space and kind of goof off. And uh, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon created these characters bill and ted and there was a third guy named bob who was played by a guy named ryan i can't remember his last name and so they created this the idea was uh i guess initially it wasn't even history it was like current events and the idea was like these two guys would these three guys would be sitting around like reading the looking at the newspaper and they would they would comment on current events and it would be like oh you know like that stuff that's going on in Iran, that's bogus, you know. Or you know, they would just were like, "What if these guys that really don't know anything were trying to comment on things that were going on in the world?" And that's kind of how it started. And they would continue to do this for fun during these sessions. And uh, I guess the guy who played the third Bob, guy got yeah, he didn't he really got, like playing got. Bob, so <laughs> he kind of cut out and. Damn it. And he stopped doing it, and so these two guys were left doing Bill and Ted, and they liked it so much that they would go to the diner and just be Bill and Ted, like at the counter eating, you know, dinner or whatever, and just 
act like that's Bill like and the Ted fifth the Beatle or or uh, Ted Healy <laughs> and the Three Stooges or like you know the guy who left the Blue Man Group. It's like you know only if you waited it out. But uh, Matheson and Solomon just liked these characters, and they liked doing it, and they liked kind of creating scenarios for them. And I think they well, mo- it's funny the innocence of them being stupid and then trying to do the current events and not yeah. knowing what they're talking about. And that's silly, you know. That's fun, silly in a funny way. And I guess they did it for they just, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, they might have done it live once. There was like a comedy thing that would happen on like uh, the college campus that Solomon was going to where they would have like live comedy and they decided to go up and be Bill and Ted live and I think they might only have done it once or twice and the idea was they would comment and then the audience would ask them questions about like history or current events and they would answer as Bill and Ted but uh, so they they had this uh, these characters they just loved them so they decided to write a uh, come up with the idea for a movie involved or at least a story involving these guys so they wrote an outline and uh there's a great featurette on the shout factory uh blu-ray where it's it's looks like it's taken from an old like an old dvd because it's like not widescreen and it's not high def so i don't know where it originally uh came from but it's there's a long featurette where it's just the two of them talking to each other and it's funny because you can hear them slipping in and out of like they'll do the voices and you can hear like kind of how it originated and they're looking at the scripts and the outlines and being like oh yeah like this that part of the movie has is in the original outline and they talk about like where the air guitar came from and uh it's just them like kind of going back and forth and talking about that so they they do an outline then they do a handwritten script that I guess they wrote in like four days. That's incredible. And illegal pad. Like a coffee shop. Yeah, an illegal pad. And uh, that's like. It's a, originally called the Spec Strip. Spec Strip. The Spec Script is originally called Bill and, Bill and Ted's Time Van. Because and originally the, it was. They hung out. <laughs> it's such a. It's like a great movie in and of itself. They hang out with this 28 year old sophomore in high school named Rufus. And Rufus. Yeah, and since he's 27, he has a van. And uh, and so the that's... The van was originally going to be like a 69 Chevy van, which is kind of, if people think of the Scooby-Doo, the original Scooby-Doo van, it looks like that. It's one of those vans that's like, a, you know, the cab over engine where it doesn't have a front. It's just kind of like, like, you know, you sit up there and then the engine's kind of in the front like a Ford Ecoline used to be. So it's one of those older kind of looking, you know, like Scooby-Doo Mystery Machine kind of vans from you know, a 69 Chevy. Yeah. So that's, you know, it's hilarious. And this is going to be their, their kind of device, their MacGuffin that gets them traveling in time. And for some reason, like, Rufus has, Rufus's van is a time machine and it was the whole thing is like i guess through the script you realize that like they start to think of like oh like when did we start hanging out with rufus and rufus has only been around for a couple of months and it turns out like rufus maybe had this plan all together because every time they're in the van in the original script they're listening to music and bill and ted would be like whoa this music's really great like who is it and at the end you realize it's them the Wild they're, Stallions. They're listening to Wild Stallions music the whole time. They just haven't written it yet. So Rufus still comes from the future. but uh, And I guess through the process of trying to put it together with Warner Brothers, uh, the movie doesn't end up coming out until several years after uh, Back to the Future. But at the time when they were selling the script around and developing it as a movie, like Back to the Future was still pretty new. So there was yeah. this fear that having the having a vehicle... Like a like a automobile be a uh, 
be the time machine would be too much like Back to the Future. So instead, they decided to unintentionally rip off Doctor Take Who. Take a TARDIS. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, guess the, uh, I guess that aspect of it came from the director, Stephen Herrick, who he, he said, what if we make it a, t- a telephone booth? But Which in itself is so dated because I was, you know, watching at the time like, wow, you know, the tele, you know, that's almost like, I don't know, us seeing like people doing like Morse code for newer kids, you know, <laughs> so it's like, you know, like, or, you know, one of the, you know, one of the, um, what do you call those telegraph machines. So, you know, when we were little telephone booths were everywhere. And, uh, I wonder, you know, since, uh, back in the day, not until I guess the World Wide web were we so connected, um, there was some people who didn't know Doctor Who because a lot of the imports from Britain coming over here, you'd only be able to watch it specifically if you watch PBS or something. So I wonder if they just realized that maybe because I, when I was little, I never made the connection because I wasn't a Doctor Who fan. Yeah, you know that that it was kind of very Tardisy in its in its look. I think it's a very ingenious modern kind of device, and even though this does have a lot of things in common with Back to the Future, I, it never occurred to me, you know. To me, just because it's a time travel movie, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're ripping one off the other. So it never occurred to me to judge it against Back to the Future or even like a Time Bandits or a Peggy Sue got married. And you realize somewhere in time there are a lot of time travel, um, uh, Final Countdown in the 80s, a lot of time travel movies. And we even did a a sidecast on time traveling movies and stuff. And I don't remember if we included Bill and Ted in that uh, maybe when we do the updated version of uh, that and little I'm special. Sure, I'm sure I must have at least mentioned it, even if we don't go into detail about it. Yeah. But it, it's a very interesting device to have it be a, 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 a bona fide phone booth. And the earlier script also, like we had said before, is kind of different in the sense where they were going back and they were kind of bumping into people and having one the, the big cataclysms in history. They would kind of inadvertently make them occur, the Titanic sinking or uh, the Hindenburg uh, uh, blowing up, but then they said they had other ideas where they went and they originally grabbed Hitler to bring Hitler back, and Hitler was going to be one of the characters, and that's when they, the, I guess, when they were in preliminary stages, uh, talking to, well, maybe when they were revamping the script or talking to people, they changed Hitler to Napoleon, and they left out Babe Ruth, and there were a couple other people in time that they that they were going to also link up to that they kind of left on the cutting room floor when they were Julius Caesar. They were going to in- inadvertently go back, see Caesar, and, and their interaction with him was going to lead to him getting murdered by the, yeah. everyone, you know, by um, his best Brutus and everybody like that. Uh, two Brutus, you know, so it's like uh, that's, I find all that hilarious. Yeah, if and they, there was know, that, also... That would have been funny. <laughs> there was also, I you guess, know. in the early, in an early version of the script where they end up bringing, like, just a surf from the Middle Ages when they see the princesses with them. So it's like John yeah. the Surf was with them. And he's like, he's not of anybody of significance. He's just along for the ride. John the Surf. And then they meet Charlemagne, who they call uh, Charlie Mangay. You know, so it's just, it's, uh, it's, a lot of this sounds funny. And it would be cool if they, and it's, it's one, funny because I hadn't thought about it since uh, it came out, but. When this movie went to video, DC Comics did do a novel or a comic book adaptation for it. And I have, and I probably still have somewhere, that original DC Comics uh, adaptation. And I was thinking back, I don't know if I got, I might have got that at the video store. The video store might have been pumping that out. And I might have got it there or just my local comic book shop. But it, it would have been, and then from there, they, it got a whole comic series, which I didn't read or get into. So it would have been funny if they did 
you know, take some of these for subsequent adventures and have, you know, but I don't know if you can, do you think you can still have the zaniness of them inadvertently? Because it doesn't look like any of the history they do changes. Whereas, like you said, that butterfly effect where if you touch a butterfly in a sci-fi story, you can come back and the Third Reich could be running the world because it's so <laughs> insignificant, but it has such a ripple in time. But here, that, like you said, that these laws don't really seem to count when they kidnap Napoleon and, God forbid, who knows if they've killed anybody else by falling into the, to the circuits of time you know, and getting flown away. You know, it's like well, I think part of, that, zone. part of that comes from maybe that was an early concept of the movie, but I think when they – like I said, one of the things that's – great about the movie uh, script wise is that it's very clear cut like you know like I said earlier like they establish the goal like what do they need to do what's the obstacle what's at stake and having them go through time and ruin history would kind of be an opposing story arc as to the fact that they're supposed to actually do a presentation about history and history would be different (laughs) If they changed it, so I think they probably that would be our concept. If you and I went back in time, we'd ruin everything. You know, we'd break and. But uh, I think it probably was just like I said, an opposing idea to what they ultimately they decided. Like the whole arc of the movie is, which is like these guys go on this adventure, and what it's just what leads them to one learning about history, but two delivering their presentation so that they can stay together and form Wild Stallion. And then, you know, uh, before we get off of it, they're really Solomon and Matheson's early concept of the two of them were like 14-year-old white kids in bell-bottoms that listened to heavy metal that weren't very popular and would get, uh, you know, roughed up or picked on, you know, by bullies in high school. So it is kind of different. It's almost them having a younger mentality, almost kind of like the Warriors when you read the Warrior book uh, that it's based on Sol Urich's book you realize they're kind of like 12, 13, 14-year-olds, where in the movie they're clearly 19. They're, they're being played. It's like that old days of school where, you know, there's a 35-year-old playing a kid in high school, you know, where you see that in the old movies. Where well, they still here, do that. You know, they still yeah, do that. You know, it, it, yeah, they still do that. Now, it, you know, and I guess, uh, you know, you, the, the, the actor who played Billy Kidd is like in his 30s, and Billy the Kid died at like 21, but it's not really that noticeable. Or the girl from the Go-Go's playing um, uh, Joan of Arc. You know, she's older as well, and Joan of Arc was young, like 17 or 18. So uh, they're closer to the age of Keanu and Alex Winter, but it's just funny thinking of them as almost like scrappy, not scrappy, kind of like uh, shaggy. Yeah. And like, you know, like, a, like it's almost born out of the, the 70s Warner uh, Hanna-Barbera concept of one Scooby-Doo and... That team and a dog was so popular. That's why in the 70s you get, you know, everything else, speed buggy, you get all the, whatever the hell else it is, a gang of kids with either like a dog or a car or something to, 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 for the young kids yeah. to make jokes on. Jabberjaw. So I, I almost, yeah, Jabberjaw, you know, <laughs> and there's the whole slew of all this, these kind of, the, you know, the, the, the clue gang or, or the, you know. So you can almost see them being a Hanna-Barbera 70s cartoon. You know, the two of them with the phone booth and Rufus or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but then once they end up casting uh, Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, the that dichotomy kind of shifts and they no longer kind of seem to be the unpopular kids because they're so kind of good looking. And uh, there's a whole other sequence that they scrapped at the beginning that was going to show that they were kind of unpopular. Um, uh, but, you know, it's interesting because when the movie starts... You, you get very early on, you establish, you know, you have the beginning in 2680, 
But when you get to our modern time uh, that the movie takes place in, they kind of break that fourth wall kind of really early with the uh, non-diegetic sounds of like the air guitar or when later on when they knock the guy out in medieval times, you hear the birds chirping a la like a Looney Tunes episode. Yeah. So uh, you get a little of that, which I never noticed come Batman Forever. Like when Jim Carrey goes down into the Batcave and is throwing his bombs, you kind of get those Warner sound effects. You're like, wow, I never noticed like the cartoon sound effects in there because they were trying to make it a little more comic booky. Yeah. So um, this viewing, I didn't realize them doing that, you know, uh, excellent. You know, it's like, uh, oh, yeah, it is them adding. It is a, it's, it's an, it, it is a very bold choice to add that in, you know, and then that being what they're hearing in their heads, that little Steve I kind of solo or Van Halen solo, you yeah. know, uh, which is very of its time, you know. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, in, it, it's an interesting choice. Yeah. At some point, they, they, they need to find a director. They find this guy named Stephen Herrick, who uh, I don't know how much he was really doing before he did this movie, but I know he did Critters. Yes. <laughs> Huge fan. We're huge fans of Critters and Critters <laughs> 2 here. Uh, but he goes on to do some really uh, stuff that's, you know, very much... Oh, he's all over the place. Up our alley in terms of... He, he goes on to direct uh, Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, which is classic. Yeah. You mighty, love that, yeah. He does the Mighty Ducks. He does yeah. that uh, Three Musketeers with uh, yeah. Kiefer. Chris O'Donnell. Yeah, and uh, he does Mr. Holland's Opus. Yeah, I was gonna say that's a big one. That's like a, that's him segueing into the mainstream, you know, big waters of you know. He does Ron uh, Howard's territory. He does One Hundred One Dalmatians, the live action movie. He directed, yeah, which uh, was big at the Meryl Streep, right? Uh, no, it was uh, Glenn Close. Glenn Close, Glenn Close. yeah, uh, yeah, he, that was huge when that came out. He does a movie that I is on my list of movies that I'll watch anytime it's on, and I didn't even know he directed. It was the same director until now, which is Rockstar with. Uh, Mark Wahlberg. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've never seen. Is that that's that good, huh? It's fun, you know. I, for some yeah. reason, like music-related movies yeah, are yeah, movies sure. that you I like watch them. all the time. I watch Rockstar. You're a, that thing you do, I watch every time it's on. The Rocker, Crossroads. I watch every time it's on. Crossroads, which isn't on that much anymore. Yeah. But. Well, because people, Blake's a guitar blues singer and player. It, not only that is he is inducted into the New York City Blues Hall of Fame. But uh, so that's that's another reason why you'll sit down and watch me. It's like you know I watch Bob Ross. <laughs> <laughs> well, I watch but, that uh, too. I watch. Yeah, yeah, Bob, yeah, Bob Ross is great when you're going to bed to watch that. Well, for, for me, it's like if I'm writing or doing something, I put him on in the background because it's so calming. Like you know, you don't want to put a show on that you're gonna like watch while you're doing something. So I'll put him on, and then in a half hour, he's got a masterpiece. You're like, wow, Bob. And as he's feeding his squirrel, you know, it's like, wow, you're awesome, Bob. But anyway, so he's also, he didn't, and then he's, I have to say one thing because he's. He's yeah. also directed things that are, you know, uh, not exactly related to, to you and me, but or, or to things we talked about in our last episode. But he directed the unaired pilot for Young MacGyver, which was oh a, wow, a first version. It was like Uncle yeah. Uncle Angus <laughs> MacGyver. Wow. And, uh, which is on YouTube somewhere, which I've never watched the whole thing, but it was evidently pretty bad, and, hence why they didn't greenlight it. And uh, he's one of the executive producers, and he directed several episodes of the new MacGyver show, which I don't Oh, watch, that's but, pretty cool. Uh, that things. was good. I fell off of it. I, I, I was, it's, 
well, not to get into it now, but uh, it's interesting. You know, some diehard fans I've talked to hate it, and it is a departure from the other one. But it's just like, you know, you got to take what you can get at this point. So if you're a MacGyver fan, so it's pretty fun. But uh, I did notice he did some, he was doing like, he did a couple Dolly Parton movies. He did like a couple of those. It almost, they almost seemed like Hallmark or, or um, you know, those kind of like love, you know, those TV movies that are like, you know, the Christmas movies and the, the your fair. Yeah, like yeah. it seemed like in recent years he was doing a lot of those. So it's good that he's still working and doing. I mean, you know, in the late '90s there he had some pretty huge. You know, Mr. Holland's Opus was big, yeah, big brother. So that's good. And then coming off of Critters, that's awesome. You know, and uh, so they, they they get this script together, and it's it's a really interesting idea. And they start pitching it around, and Warner's like, "We'd be into it, but we don't know." Warner says they kind of drag their feet, saying like, "We don't know how to." who to market this to, right? They say something like that. They have, they have some, some issues with it. They don't know what to do with it, really. And then uh, they finally go to Dino De Laurentiis' company, who uh, was still doing things in, you know, big in the 70s and the 80s. Yeah. And they're kind of trying to pitch it to Dino himself. And Dino's, you know, the older Italian, and they're trying to f- explain it to him. But then, you know, he's having a problem understanding what the, the Italian equivalent to dude is and what bro and so he's so finally i don't know if this is true or not but they say that they 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 explain to him or he starts to think that dude means like guys with big dicks so he's like (laughs) oh okay and he's like so he suddenly gets into it he's like oh i get it you know so he kind of um that green lights the movie for 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 the dino de laurentis's uh production company what's it called the um um that ends up going bankrupt. I forget the name of the darn thing. But um, De Laurentiis company... That's why they get two weeks in Italy. De, De, De is. I mean, I think we should nominate. We should put him into contention for Sleepover Movie Hall of Fame. Cause, sure. Uh, I mean, I, I gather he had a, a couple of companies through the years, but like, not only did he do uh, King Kong in the 70s, which is a movie that yeah. you and I have a great fondness for, but didn't he do like Conan? Also, am I mistaken about that? Yeah, uh, he did the Conans. He did uh, Silver Bullet. He did. He did a, a couple of those yeah. Stephen King adaptations in the in the uh, in the in the eighties. He did, and uh, I feel like he did a run. He gave Canon a run for their money because I feel like there's a whole series of other Bronson or those kind of guys doing like action movies at the time. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like those are all Delo De Laurentiis, maybe like. Charlie, uh, the, uh, what's it called? The Velachi fa- Papers, which is like Bronson's movie about the first guy. We talked about that in the last episode. The first guy with rats on the mob. Yeah, I feel like that was a Delo De Laurentiis pictures production did, kind like, of a thing. He did Manhunter. Uh, wow. He went on to do Army of Darkness. Maybe even Evil Dead Two. He might have produced. So yeah, uh, actually, I think that's. I think when we did Evil Dead Two, we talked about how it was Stephen King that told Dino De Laurentiis like. Because they were working together on all those Stephen King movies, he said. I think it was Stephen King that was like, "Oh, like you should get Sam Raimi to do Evil Dead Two. Like you should produce that." Because yeah, Stephen King was a huge uh, fan of the first one. So uh, Dino, I feel like he's connected. Dino's also connected to maybe Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Maybe I don't know. I wouldn't yeah. be surprised. But uh, so Dino De because uh, I was talking to a producer who worked on that. Um, and she was telling me stories about that set. And then I think it was also maybe the Suns. They were kind of producers because yeah. they shot a bit of that in Asia, you know, in China and stuff like that or Hong Kong. The other guy. So I feel like 
The other guy from this movie that I think we need to nominate for uh, Sleepover Movie Hall of Fame is I discovered that uh, the DP, the director of photography, Tim, he's got a tough name, Surstit, S-U-H-R-S-T-E-T. Listen to this lineup of movies. This guy's shot. He shot Sorority, uh, The House on Sorority Row, which is a horror movie that I love. Richard Band's score is one of my favorite scores. Teen Wolf, Critters, Mannequin, uh, Remote Control, Mystic Pizza, Feds. <laughs> wow. Remember Feds with uh, Rebecca DeMornay? Uh, don't Tell yeah, Mom right. the Big... Don't Tell Mom the, the Big... Jack Palance, maybe? <laughs> maybe. I, don't, I haven't seen it forever. I think he's on the cover like... Uh, don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. He did seven episodes of The Wonder Years. He, wow. He uh, shot the pilot for Melrose Place. He shot uh, The Wedding Singer with Adam Sandler. He shot the third... Major League movie, Major League Back to the Minors, starring Scott Bakula. He shot nice. uh, the movie Office Space, which is a big cult classic these days. Yeah. The Hot, Ch- the Hot Chick with Rob Schneider, which is one of my favorites. Schneider. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine, which was a big uh, critical acclaim a couple years ago. And sure. uh, he shot 45 episodes of that HBO, the HBO series Silicon Valley, which I was a big fan of. So oh, okay. Uh, that guy is... Uh, He's got a hell of a resume. And that's just what I mentioned. I mean, he's, he's done plenty more. I just, those are just some highlights. I feel like I met the, I never seen that show, but there's an Asian actor on that show that I met. And he was like, you don't know me from Silicon Valley? I was like, no, I don't watch that, but I hear it's good. Um, <laughs> to see that conversation. Wait, you don't know me? <laughs> well, he wasn't like that. I don't mean to. I, I'm misrepresenting him, but everybody knew who he was because he was on that show. And then me, I'm watching Cagney and Lacey again. I'm like, oh, I don't know, maybe I'll watch it in 30 years. You know, so I didn't know who the gentleman was. And then I was like, oh, maybe I should go watch that because I hear it was really good. It's like a comedy, isn't it? Like a, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. It's yeah, Mike yeah. Judge, the guy who did um, Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. And Office King Space. of the Hill and stuff. Yeah. Um, so we get Dino to produce it and then you get what, I don't know, you get about 12 weeks of shooting, two weeks in Italy to do some of the, the I think, the period stuff and then they, they double uh, Scottsdale and Phoenix, Arizona for LA. I want to say something uh, you know, about... I didn't know when I was little. I want to say something about Arizona because I've discovered part of my quarantine uh, COVID 2020 uh, uh, madness <laughs> curriculum uh, rituals have been on Saturdays. I watch teen movies and uh some of them are recent nice. ones like uh earlier today i watched kissing booth 2 because it's new on netflix <laughs> which one uh, kissing booth 2 it's a netflix movie nice i watched the first kissing booth a couple weeks ago but i've also been Ooh. visiting i've also been visiting a lot of the 80s uh uh movies uh like three o'clock high which you brought up uh just one that's one to do on this show just one of the guys I, I watched recently, which I should give a shout out to. Uh, I wanted to watch it uh, last weekend or two weekends ago, I guess. And I was very upset to find out that just one of the guys was not free anywhere. And I didn't want to. The movie, just one of the guys. Yeah. yeah. I didn't want to. You know, I'm not above renting a movie to watch it. But we, you spend so much time. You I, have to, you, but, sometimes you have to get a whole new service. 
But it's like I'm paying for so many services, including cable and all these streaming services. And then sometimes, often, when Dion and I do a movie here, we have to rent it. So that's a cost. And uh, so I didn't want to rent it. I would have got around to renting it at some point. But instead, I watched Young Sherlock Holmes, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. Of course. But <laughs> Another one for this show. But the reason why I bring it up is because a uh, listener, and I don't know his name. I just know him as D.G., the initials DG. Nice. Uh, so I want to give him a shout out because he sent me an Amazon gift card code so that I could to pay for me to rent just one of the guys. Were you on Were you on Twitter ranting again about you? Like, damn, I want to watch this and I can't watch I, it. I guilted one of our <laughs> listeners into paying for it. So he 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 helped a brother out. Uh, he's like, yeah, so go watch shout a movie. out shout out to DG for allowing me to yeah, watch. Yeah, man. Uh, just one of the guys. And uh, I also watched uh, Can't Buy Me Love with Patrick Dempsey. The yeah. reason I bring all this up is because all those 80s movies that I just mentioned yeah, shot in Arizona. Wow. High school movies were shot in Arizona in the 80s. I've been to Arizona, and I had to do an event there for, for cable, my, my, my day job and ca- cable news, and it was so hot in Phoenix. We were setting up at an outdoor festival. And it's like there's not like a tree in Arizona or Phoenix where I was. And it was just so like, uh, but as a kid, I never realized to me, it looked like California, you know, it didn't, it didn't, I don't know. I wonder why they couldn't film where they wanted to. It wasn't like they were on the sunset strip or something. I imagine there must've been great tax breaks to shoot in Arizona then. Yeah. Or maybe that as well as they had their location for the set. You know, they're going to do the, the stuff with the phone booth and stuff because they did that yeah. also in either Scottsdale or Phoenix. Yeah. Also, uh, the reason why Bill and Ted was good to shoot in Arizona is because you also had um, in a nearby town, you had that west, that western town. Oh, yeah. That they shot their um, the, 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 the kid sequence. The, the, the kid stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, there was kind of yeah. uh, reasons for them to shoot there in terms of logistical stuff of other things in the movie. But all those other movies, like Three O'clock High, just one of the guys, those were shot in Arizona for some reason. Three O'clock High shot in Arizona. I thought that was a New York movie. When I was little, I I, I thought it was a New. York. Wow, what a good movie! I got to go back and watch that again. I <laughs> just watched that uh, a couple weeks ago. <laughs> that's all. These movies are like sleepover. World. They're all on a list. Like we always say, so many movies, so little time. So they shoot this in Arizona. Doubles for a lot. Sadly, uh, like uh, a lot of the high school was knocked down, or they kept the facade. Other stuff. And then I just read the mall they shot in closed uh, June of 2020, which is like a month ago. So maybe it was because of COVID or whatever. But that mall, after 47 or eight years of service, uh, that closed. Um, but. So they, that doubled for California. And uh, the, the story, you know, it, we, we needle it down to, as we were saying before, you know, also this has, a, I think, a hint of like the hitchhiker, Hitchhiker's Guide too, a little of that, like where you totally. have the, the person coming to you and telling you what you need to do and you're jumping into the, the time machine well, phone Well, it's booth. interesting you bring um, Hitchhiker up because, I mean, that's always thought of as being a very British story. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, and this is actually a segue to something else involved. But uh, when they wrote it, when uh, Matheson and Solomon wrote it, they definitely saw it as being tonally much more like a Mighty Python movie. And yeah. uh, it was Stephen Herrick, the director, who kind of helped it find its own identity uh, and uh, toned down a lot of that stuff, but, you know, grounded it in a certain reality and... Uh, 
for lack of a better term, that was kind of its own thing and not so Monty Python-ish. Uh, but the reason why I say it's a bit of a segue is because because of all the historic, because it was a comedy and all the historical stuff that were involved in it, they decided to go to the production designer, uh, Roy Forge Smith, who was Monty Python's production designer, who was the production designer on like Monty Python on the Holy Grail and stuff, and, uh, and also Terry Gilliam movies like Jabberwocky. And, uh, but he also went on to do a bunch of sleepover classics like the horror movie Curtains. Uh, Warlock was 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 big movie in the early nineties. Oh yeah, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles one through three. The third one the, the having live some his- movies. Yeah, having the third one having some historical uh, aspects to it. He did Robin yeah. he- Robin Hood Men in Tights, the Mel Brooks wow, movie. Okay. Mel Brooks, yeah, uh, that's one did you want to hear? As well as Dracula Dead and Loving It by uh, Mel Brooks. Uh, Mel Brooks. <laughs> wow, you forget. You know, I, I it always for me either. Uh, Spaceballs or even uh, Life Stinks kind of I forget after that he did Men in Tights and he did Dracula Dead and Loving It he did a couple others after that you know and supposedly now I don't know if that's conjecture or not that there aren't there aren't they doing a new Spaceballs I've heard I've heard things I've heard things (laughs) I heard some things Um, so then the casting for this movie it's funny because you get all over the place people say Brendan Fraser was rumored to cast but then Somebody said they asked him recently. He said, no, I've never auditioned. But you had River Phoenix auditioning. You had maybe even um, Sean Penn we just brought up auditioning. You had all these different people auditioning, the young actors at the time. And it was something like they saw like 200 to 300 people. And one of the pers- first people they saw, they said, was Keanu. And they kind of got it in their heads. They want to use Keanu. And then they had, I guess they whittled that down to like 24 people they had callbacks with to see who would interact well with each other as well as who would interact well with Keanu. And there's two strokes of luck here. One that, and I guess Keanu was one of the first people they saw, and it's like, you know, when you and I used to cast for our student films, we'd do it the real way with putting uh, want ads in backstage, which was a, um, a trade magazine to get actors, and we'd have to go audition them in, in, in New York City. we rent space for it. It's like we'd see the... When, I, I, certainly I remember is if, you, if you have an audition of someone you like the first round to go around and then you see people for another couple hours, you still like that first person because you're judging all the other performances, the auditions off that guy. So I think that's one of, of a bit of a stroke of luck for Keanu. And then two, evidently for the callbacks, Alex Winder was one of the people that got called back in. I guess him and Keanu arrived early and they had time to talk. And so they got there early enough where they were able to just BS, and then they bonded very quickly because they had an affinity for bass guitar yeah. as well as, uh, I think, motorcycles. So they, they yeah. de- instantly developed a rapport and a shorthand that so that when, which is a second stroke of luck because I feel like that inadvertently put the other actors auditioning at a disadvantage. Sure. So when uh, they auditioned... Yeah, one of the uh, producers, Stephen Krupp, or Scott, Scott Krupp, says that uh, one of the things they noticed was, you know, you'd, they'd come out, there'd be, all the actors would be seated, like, in the waiting room, and they'd come out, and they'd say, okay, give me you and you, and then they would go in, and they would read, uh, and try all these different combinations. But uh, Scott Krupp says that when he would go out to get people, he would always notice, like, sitting in the corner where Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter would be, you know, bullshitting in the, in the background together the corner and then when one of them would get called off they'd say okay hold on wait a second they the, they would go off and do their audition and when they came back they would go sit next to each other and continue to talk so they kind yeah. of noticed that these two guys are already like chummy so that when 
what Dion's referring to is like when they got in there to read together, like they already had a rapport established and uh, and a kind of certain chemistry because they had already they just spent hours just sitting around bullshitting together anyway. Yeah, and it gave them that advantage, so they end up getting cast in. Like you said, they're very lovable genuine warm innocent characters they had a motto uh that they said a lot that they said when um you know it was never say die never quit you know that kind of a thing um so that was you know they 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 like and it goes back to that labrador thing that you were saying before um where it's like they played scenes uh the director would say like you know we need more lab more puppy in it because they looked at them as lovable labradors and they're just innocent guys and i think that really as i said before is a saving grace at least for me in the movie because if you played it a different kind of way if they were kind of like jaded or a little more like guys you see again in days confused or even super bad it wouldn't be as effective i like that they're they have the abbott and costello or the little hardy innocence about them the classic stand-up yeah, duo vaudevillian kind of a, a, a um, uh, ethic or a uh, uh, a feeling between them, which yeah. I think really hits that out of the park here. Yeah, well, I mean, let's be totally clear and honest here. Like the this entire movie hinges on those two guys and their yeah. their chemistry together, and also how they play them. Uh, t- take any of that out of the equation take one piece of any of that out of the equation and this movie could one easily piece. fall <laughs> they easily could fall apart so i mean it yeah. all it hit, i mean they're in other than when you see napoleon off you know with the doing his thing with the with the kids other than that like i don't know if we ever really leave bill and ted once the movie starts going so it completely hinges on the fact that they they work well together and then stephen herrick the director's like insight into like you know this puppy factor like this big lab like you got to play it this innocence of a dog that you know that everybody loves but also loves everybody and they're genuine it's like they're re- they're they're yeah you know they have that yeah puppy dog quality of i mean the, the reason loving. why i think we've said it so many times is because it's so important to the success of this movie not yeah just financially but you know, dramatically, also narratively, uh, yeah. I mean, you can't overstate the importance of those two guys in this movie, and clearly not like a classically amazing thespian acting performance out of either one of them. But they do find those characters, and they do in this outrageous speech and outrageous adventure tale somehow ground those two characters in a reality that we as an audience could buy into and we can buy into their love for each other but also they're like sincere when 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 bill says be excellent to each other like you that it's that is a sincere notion (laughs) you know what i mean like he's not bsing he's not telling them what he thinks they want to hear and it's such a innocent and positive. It's like it's it's you know it's almost like like not Tony Robbins, but it's like very you know it's you know it's very pro. I've said it many you know. times online, and it's if you go on Facebook, it's one of like when you can you write a quote in your Facebook profile. It's like you can pick quotes. One of the two quotes 
and my Facebook pro- pro- profile is "Be Excellent to Each Other" by Bill S. Preston Esquire. <laughs> like I literally yeah, the third, <laughs> and I understand. <laughs> oh, sorry, Ted is the third, and I understand that you know this this idea of being excellent to each other is the golden rule, you know, way back and whatever, and what Jesus was, uh, whatever prophets were. But to me, like, I have lived my life under the... (laughs) Jesus is, and be excellent to each other, (laughs) my disciples. This idea of treat treat people the way you want to be treated, be excellent to to each other, is exactly the way I've lived my life since I've become, like, an adult. And you know me... Uh, it's the same thing I say, you know. As in, you know, my innocence has been thwarted many times because people weren't excellent to each other. I went, uh, and then I, I mean, continued to be excellent to people. Quite fr- I mean, the world would be a better place if everybody lived by that notion. I was at Clear, a uh, yes. I went to a I went to a Eric Clapton concert uh, several years ago by myself because at this point I've seen him so many times nobody will go with me anymore. <laughs> so I've I seen went, him with you what three times maybe? <laughs> yeah, I think least. we've gone together. Uh, so I went to Sierra Club at Madison Square Garden alone. Nice, nice. Uh, so I'm sitting there, and I have an aisle seat because I try to get aisle seats nowadays because I'm big and I'm old, and I want to be able to get out if I want to need to get Sound out. Sound like my dad. Let's go. And <laughs> no, uh, the movie ain't even yet. Let's go. I went to the concession stand, and I got a thing of M and M's. And sitting next to me was another guy who was by himself. So I was eating M and M's, and I and I. I gave him the elbow. I nudged him, and I during the show, and I held, I held, handed, I held out the bag of M and M's, being like, "Do you want any M and M's?" To this guy who was a complete. Did stranger. he think he was coming on to you? No, he was just. We were just sitting there watching the show. But That's I was nice. like, "He's by himself. I'm by myself." I said, "Do you want some M and M's?" He's like, "No, but thank you." So later on in the show, he gets up and he walks out, and he comes back with snacks, and he drops a bag of pretzels in my lap. And I was like, oh. So I ate the pretzels. And after the show, when I got up to leave, I turned to him and said, hey, man, thanks for the pretzels. And he said to me, you know, man, if everybody offered their M&Ms to everybody else, the world would be a better place. <laughs> and I said, thanks, man. Well, it was good, good, watching, just, the sh- good watching the show with you. And so Let me just clear, clear the tear <laughs> out of my eye because that, that is honestly touching. It's true. <laughs> be, being excellent to each other is a very easy thing to do. And... That's why it's one of the reasons why I love this movie. Because when Bill says that in this movie, it's sincere and he means it. Yeah. And it's one of the things, it, it kind of in, embodies the whole thing that we're talking about with these two guys and why they're so likable. And it's funny because, like we established, they're not necessarily book smart, but there's a funny joke at the end of the movie, which I'm jumping to the end, but when they're doing their presentation and you have um, Napoleon doing... He, what, if people don't, maybe, you know, uh, people who are military, historical fans of military, you know, he's, he's sketching out his Waterloo battle, which is the, Napoleon's epic failure, you know, and uh, it was a real blow to his failure for Waterloo. And you see he's got all these army guys and all that, and that's the, the punchline of that joke is if you know the thing that, well, if you know the joke, the punchline is what Keanu looks up and goes, I don't think it's going to work. And that's when he slams everything down and yeah. gets mad. Like, no? But it's funny because it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's kind of like you see kind of their intelligence there. Uh, and before we get too farther away, 
uh, we talked Dilo De Laurentiis. That's the reason why we get that King Kong poster drop in the movie is because of the, the Dino De Laurentiis connection. But also at the time, King Kong was huge, you know. So that's very. It's not like it's on. It's not like they have like I don't know some movie. You're like, why the hell would those something kids have, else you know? I noticed in that bedroom is hanging up. I never was allowed to do that. Like hang up your, you know, f- have your things floating like a model plane or something. I was never allowed to do oh, that. Oh yeah, in my house. I tried that and they would just fall. <laughs> but because uh, you and I would be up there with like scotch tape, <laughs> so like you really yeah. gotta and gotta be there for the like twenty in. minutes and then it, <laughs> or it would hang wrong. I put it up there and it would hang sideways. And I'm like, why? Yeah, why can't I balance it right? But one of the things why I noticed I in that bedroom, right. one of the things I noticed in that bedroom, which I assume is the little brother's bedroom. Is uh, remember those? And I'm sure we've talked about it on the show at some point or in a sidecast over the eight years we've been doing <laughs> podcasting, even though it's six years for this show. Uh, remember those? It was kind of like they were kind of like uh, I don't know. They were it was kind of like think of He Man, but they were like bug people, and they you had, put your hand in the glove. Yeah, and they had the like, and you oh, could yeah. you could move your finger, and the the wings would flap. The bee, and then the per- peop- the person would get on. It'd be like a black silk glove. Yeah, you put your hand into, and that would be the bottom, like you're a puppeteer of the giant insect. And then you'd have your action figure, which I guess was about He Man size with the bow legged. Yeah, and a then little, they would sit bit, on the back, uh, a little more articulate, stockier, a little yeah. bit taller. And, and then they would get on there, and they would. Yeah, that was huge. But that, oh, yeah, that that's was flying. That's hanging. That was hanging. The the firefly thing was like hanging up. In that bedroom. And I was like, oh, fuck. Remember that? <laughs> That's so cool. That is such a, a throwback to, oh, gosh. We'll never have another throwback, too, in this movie was when they get in the phone booth and they say, let's reach out and touch someone. That was such a big, uh, I don't know what the uh, nowadays, the, you know, I, w- I was always going to say, like, about 10 years ago, you could say the equivalent was the MasterCard or Visa Priceless. Yeah. Remember that thing where, you know, that, but that thing was so big and that was Ma Bell, the company, uh, that was their, lo- that was their, their motto and their commercial. And that's another frame of reference where you make a period joke if you date it. Kids don't now necessarily understand that. But back then, supposedly, when, since this movie was successful, that brand got successful again and helped them relaunch their career because I know Ma Bell consolidated and then broke up. You had Southern, Southern, all these different, you know, Bells at the time of different companies. But I think they're saying that that helped them also because they mentioned that in the, as a joke in the, the delivery in the movie. Uh, reach out and touch somebody. Uh, it's just so funny, you know. And, you know, you forget about stuff like that, those old toys, those commercials. Then suddenly you see them like, whoa, dude, <laughs> bro. You know, one of the uh, um, one of the things that the screenwriters said in the in that interview where they're sitting around kind of talking to each other is that one of the things that they would do instinctually when they would act out the characters, but then when they wrote it, which is they kind of start everything with saying the name, like they're so it's like Phil, what are you doing, or or dude. It was either like every sentence when they talk to each other, it starts with the other one's name or the word dude, which is kind of funny. And they also talk about how uh, Alex Winters. Uh, Alex Winter talks about. He's like, I think the reason why we see every time we see Rufus, we're so excited. 
It's like Rufus is because yeah. because they didn't cast George Carlin until like fairly late into the movie, and so was, there was always this big question. I was like, who's going to play Rufus? And so there was. Yeah, all they didn't the- cast him until like a couple weeks were left of filming because his role wasn't that sizable. But they, you're right; they had this big like, when's the other shoe going to drop, and they're going to be able to finally cast this mysterious character. So, <laughs> so Alex Winter kind of says that like the reason why we're so excited is because I think we're just relieved that we found the right Rufus for the movie. And they had some interesting ideas. They were talking about having Sean Connery, a uh, whole, um, you know, Van Halen himself, yeah. or either Ringo, all these different people. And I think Connery would have been an interesting idea. He's in um, Time Bandits, and he's also in Highlander. So it would have been interesting having him be like, you know, hello, Bill and Ted. You know, <laughs> you have to go in the phone booth. But then yeah. I guess they realized, you know, everybody we're looking for, well, Van Halen, because there's so many references to Van Halen in the movie, they thought it'd be cool to have him. And I actually don't know how cool that would have been because, one, he's a non-actor, which isn't a bad thing. You know, a lot of times, like, Mick Jagger does a great job. But uh, I think it would have been too self-referencing. I like Carlin in it yeah. a little more. But then they said was the whole time they never thought of... They were always going after serious actors or big heavyweights. They never thought, like, oh, why don't we try to get a comedian in here? And then that's how they stumbled on George Carlin because... The producer had worked with him before, I think, in, a, in another movie. Yeah. So they just worked with him. Yeah, I mean, and, uh, uh, Scott Krupp talks about how the one of the producers is that, you know, it was such a brilliant stroke of, uh, you know, casting because, like, who's cooler than George Carlin? Like, he's just cool. Like, he just kind of embodies cool. And, you know, it's interesting because he is a comedian, but he's also he doesn't really have to do any comedy in it in the way he's the straight man to these two guys and his, yeah. and he delivers like this very subtle performance, which only works because they're so over the top and animated that like his kind of like, uh, withdrawn, like a little bit more low key performance kind of like, you know, it kind of, it almost lends an air of credibility to his character. Yeah. Cause it, he grounds everything. Yeah. And uh, and then they also said that when he got cast, that he was very, uh, he didn't, very little improv from him. He kept really to the book. And, you know, he would even ask permission if he had a suggestion as opposed to just doing it in the scene, which I think they thought quite different from him being a stand-up comedian and all that. But he was very serious about the role and wanting to make sure he did it right. And, you know, he, he brought a lot of professionalism, making sure that it was all right. And the other thing I think with the two of them is that the, also their 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 improv together like they say that the scene when they had the iron um the 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 big uh uh knights of the iron uh soldier outfit on whatever the hell you call it yeah. damn it uh um that you know that, that them doing the star wars thing was all improv so there's a lot of like improv that you see between the two of them and that kind of gets them uh going and and it's it it almost it's almost kind of a slapstick i mean they do reference that they 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 were influenced by Peter Sellers and Spike uh, uh, Milligan for 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 uh, the kind of style they wanted these characters to be, and there isn't that much slapstick. You don't have like a Abbott and Costello or or, or Martin and Lewis in here where they're really like slapping each other yeah. or whatever the heck. But you do have a level of slapstick. But I think that's maybe because, like you said, they're both the straight man and both the comedian, so there's not one playing whatever. So you 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 do have a level of. Um, uh, uh, of comfortability, but then you could see that that, that the, there could be a lot of improv. Like this would have been a great 
thing for the two of them to take on the road and have like a traveling show. Yeah. To go to, from city to city and done like, do like you know like Cheech and Chong kind of a do. Yeah. Kind of like something like that. You know. Um, I guess but Cheech I love and, Cheech and Chong Carlin is a pretty good well. correlation, I think, because. And Cheech and Chong, they're, I mean, obviously it's more of a stoner comedy, but they're also both kind of goofy, you know, yeah. and it's how their relationship works together that, and their chemistry together is what works about Cheech and Chong more than even the material, uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, but all of that, you know, I, I, you know, this is a perfect example of like a director, Stephen Herrick, you know, just like not. A director like not getting the credit kind of he deserves because, you know, to be able to allow, create an atmosphere. I mean, part of like a director's job is creating an atmosphere that they're, the movie they're trying to make can be made in. And so creating an atmosphere where both Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves feel comfortable enough to go places or improv stuff. But also uh, the guy who plays Napoleon, for instance, uh, Terry... Camilleri, uh, he talked about how he would come up with stuff and like he's the one that uh, 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 supposedly threw himself down the the uh, uh, bowling alley and started hitting the ground and then got up and and because his hand was hurt like put it in his put it like in his shirt like in all those pictures we see of Napoleon like he came up with that so uh the director created this environment where these guys felt comfortable with that, and and the guy and the guy who plays Napoleon said that at some he's like I would always go to him and say I have an idea, can I try it? And he would say yes. And pretty much after a couple of times of doing it, uh, the director just said to him, "Look, if you have an idea, just do it. And if I do, if we don't like it or it doesn't work, we'll do it again like the script. You know, like yeah. just go for it. And because that's also it's a fine line for a director because. You can easily you start you start giving them some slack in the in the leash. Yeah, some latitude. Uh, then, yeah. You can kind of roll, run off the rails, and it can be hard to kind of pull it back. But he managed to create this great balance of creative freedom for the performers, uh, you know. But he had a strong script that also worked in 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 you know almost all accounts, if if not all accounts. And so it's a it's I give a lot of credit to him for being able to find those characters with Keanu and, and Alex Winter to like have the 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 kind of foresight to say like you guys are puppies, but also giving everybody this this slack on the leash to be creatively uh free, but also yeah. knowing being able to keep everything on the rails. It's, it's a tough juggling job and I imagine he does it perfectly in this. Yeah, the, the the project I was just doing that we talked about at the beginning of the cast, uh, the the movie I'm in where I'm I'm playing kind of an idiot in it, and th- there were scenes where the director, you know, I was improving a lot with the with my with my actor, the the, the co act co star, and luckily he, you know, we would like you and I do, we imp- we were improving a lot of stuff that we thought was funny and a lot of slapstick, and me, I you know, I I was doing physical comedy, so. Uh, Luckily, the director was like, "Yeah, go, go for it." You know, he wasn't. Some people are so married to a script; they want you to do it this way, and that's it. Where if you do have an idea that you think is funny, and they're they're comfortable with letting you try it, and you know, the best thing in the world is seeing that you're making the people behind the camera laugh. Then you kind of know you're doing something. I mean, that was a joke with, um, I think it was what Rodney Dangerfield. Did we talk about that when he did 
Caddyshack, which is actually just having an anniversary uh, as of this recording, where uh, Dangerfield had never done a movie like that before. So he was doing all these... He'd come to set very nervous, and then he would be doing all the takes and doing all these jokes. And then after the take, he was sweating and very uh, insecure, and somebody pulled him aside and said, what's wrong? And he's like... You know, I, I'm used to live audiences, so I don't. I'm not hearing anybody, so I don't know if these are hitting or, or, or if they're complete misses. And and the the person he was talking to, like, no. If 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 you look, everyone behind the camera are having to like look away, walk away, or hold their mouths because it's so funny. We're laughing our asses off at what you're doing, and that kind of gave Dangerfield a little more security or confidence in what he's doing. So it's really good when you have that latitude to be able to do something, bring something to the table. Because you you and I, we know our, our comedy is almost all improv when we do stuff. Yeah. And that sometimes is the best stuff when you're able to to riff and do, and, and have that relationship where you can do that. Um, I, like and that I, think, I like that we talk about it like we're these big comedic... <laughs> Like I know, we're, yeah, we're these icons, and you know, I was talking to Peter Sellers yesterday, and Peter Sellers said, "Dion, come it's over." It's like, it's like, we it's, go- like it's like the Rupert Pumpkin. We goofed know? off in a couple of student films and a couple of like we did have an improv class where you know, yeah. acting class when we were in college, but uh, and we're uh, auteurs now, and we do know? a podcast where we where we play off of each other, but. Uh, not a, yeah. a very different. We have way. we have this legendary. Well, we were in these huge movies, and you know, it's about like I said, the Rupert Pumpkin kind of thing. Where we're in our basements interviewing imaginary friends, like you know. Uh, but uh, Carlin also, little known fact, grew up with our friend Randy Jurgensen, who we bring up a lot. The the actor turned or the uh, NYPD homicide detective turned actor and, and consultant, all that. Who's in all the movies that we, we reference a lot, and they grew up together. And if if you notice. When uh, Carlin's talking, he kind of has the same cadence as Randy, which is I find interesting. And it's like, oh, it's because they, you know, they come from the same neighborhood. They have the same delivery and way of speech. Yeah. So I think bringing Carlin in and then Carlin having a reserved calm performance really does ground and make it uh, kind of awesome. I didn't know that at the beginning of the movie, the um, they what do they call them? The the oh three most important people in the world, those people in 2688 uh, that Rufus goes and talks to, the kind of like the, the head council, they're also musicians. You have uh, Clarence Clemens from uh, E Street Band, uh, Fee Waybill uh, Wade of the Tubes, and you have Martha Davis of the, mo- uh, the Motels. And then, as we said later on, we have uh, Jane Wideland of the Go-Go's playing Joan of Arc. So... That also is really cool that you have all these other uh, people playing these really interesting uh, cameos. Yeah. And uh, as a kid, I, I remember. I sh- as a kid, I always, like I recognized Clarence Clemens, but uh, I didn't know that those other two people, who those other people were. Well, they don't were. have any business. They're just there. Yeah, you know, they're just kind of like. Um, but uh, apparently, so the rumor mill goes with casting that they originally wanted to get CC Top to play those three guys. <laughs> Which have been cool, you know, with the beards and all that. You know, you get them in Back to the Future 3, yeah. uh, you know, but they were the bee's knees back in the day, and that would have been awesome. And then also we have Solomon and Matheson, the writers, they cameo in the ice cream sequence. I think they're those two asshole waiters that yeah. are really uh, doing that piggy, which is, I, I didn't know, I guess that that's a real uh, character, the pig, the pig, not Piggly Wiggly, but Ziggy the guy that, that they... Ziggy, yeah. He was in public domain at the time, so they used him as the, as the ice cream shop... Um, uh, character, but that's them doing a cameo. And I mean, when I was little, it's funny because there's 
uh, going back to the ambiguousness of of the time travel and stuff, it's much like again to 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 bring up time bandits. You know, like when and I haven't seen time bandits in years, but I do remember since I'm a Titanic buff, the scene when they they jump on the Titanic and they're all sitting in deck chairs, and then within seconds the Titanic just flies up like it's a ride, and then two seconds later in the water to speed things up. You could tell here. There is a, there is a little ambiguity with the history where it's like you don't really need to know you know Billy the kid doesn't need to be a young kid you know or so it it, it kind of stretches who these people are and, and you know Genghis Khan and and Lincoln and uh, you met Al Young uh, remember oh, you, you when you were yeah. in yeah so and he who plays Genghis Khan who was a very recognizable figure of that era we've talked about here who's been in a what a half a dozen movies we've covered on this oh, podcast you know, it's die hard uh lethal weapon the, the troubled little china the, <laughs> so troubled little china uh probably more stuff that we can't even think of we're like oh yeah you know and he's great in this so i remember you know he was a very recognizable face for us when we were little because he was always that guy you know that new martial arts that can kick somebody's ass he was always the badass like um uh, baddie and him with the aluminum baseball bats was classic in in the sporting goods store um them doing those jokes like you know iron maiden you know like oh you know like though that was funny to me that would you know so there was there was always little jokes when i was little that hit that i would laugh at like yeah. you know that i thought was very funny um i always thought even when i was little the silliness of when they go back in time and Ted falls down the stairs that he fell out of the arm, the arm, a suit of armor, you know, because it's like, oh, okay, because it takes an hour to put on or whatever. Yeah. I you fell know. out when I fell out of the suit when it hit the ground. <laughs> exactly. But it stayed perfectly. Whoa. Wow. Uh, but again, it lends to the, the, the silliness of the movie. Well, this is, so, an, this is an instance where uh, the trailer kind of embedded in my brain. The, I, the, oh, sure. You know, take them to the Iron, put them in the Iron Maiden. <laughs> Excellent. Exactly. Execute Bogus. Bogus. Like, that was yeah. on every commercial and every trailer. Sure. So, like, there's some or other they put their heads through the wall, you know, when they would, you know, with the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the Western sequence, which evidently is kind of has shades of uh, the bar fight and airplane because they, you know, and I think that might be the sequence that they're doing Staying Alive. Yeah. You know, and then they go through, you know, it's, it's, they may be like in the, the Blue Parrot in Casablanca or something in that sequence and... So evidently, I don't know if that's an homage to airplane that they, you know, one slides on the bar, puts his head through, the other one puts his head through too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, sure. It, it, the, the, this is, is an example that the trailer sold, literally sold the, the movie to us. So I do remember all those sequences, you know, like uh, how cool Rufus looked and the, 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 the phone box and, and uh, you know, those sequences of them saying stuff uh, Just, so well. Uh I mean, in terms of stuff, I think I said it earlier. I mean, there's this, like, I just, the things that make me chuckle are, like, when they land in the backyard and they're all getting out and they're, they're it, uh, telling Missy, like, oh, this is my friend, uh, <laughs> you know, Bob Genghis Kong and uh, Socrates Johnson. And, like, <laughs> like, that makes me laugh. And then later when, uh, Socrates and Billy the kid are in the mall trying to pick up the girls. 
Well, they, it's, I do like that they they come together, and since they're the first ones that they got that, that they that met, that they do stand together, that's cool. Yeah, like there's like a friendship. There's there, a continuity but, there. Yeah, I just think you know you see in the background when they land in the Middle Ages, and he's like throwing the football to Socrates. That they and get and out they're of the getting bag. the joke of what a football, or they're understanding the concept, yeah, and then he's kind of looking out for them afterward. Like even everyone's splitting up, they're kind of hanging together because you know it's. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a it's a warm and loving. And then even when they go meet uh, Socrates, when they go go to Greece, they do the Kansas dust yeah. in the wind, and then they do the Days of Our Lives. He he replies back with the the beginning of Days of Our Lives, the soap opera opening. Yeah. You know, the sands of I just, uh, time through our hands. I just love I love soccer. I love Socrates. Like he's so funny, yeah. and like I just whenever he whenever you get to the scene where he and Billy the kid are trying to pick up the girls in the food court. I just, I just think it's, it's gold. It's comedy gold. And then and they're like, le- they're like laughing at him, and they're like, <laughs> like, you know, they walk up. Hey, how are you girls? <laughs> I just, there's so many about things about this movie that just make me kind of chuckle when I see them. It just, uh, just makes me happy. This one. And this also reminds me, do you remember? It's a little past, um, you know, we were older at the point, but do you remember that the magic school bus? I mean, I remember of it. I don't, yeah, you didn't watch it, but it was like specific. on PBS or one of those shows. I wonder if the, if that's the kind of concept of this. Aren't the kids getting into a magic school bus that goes around time and takes them to different points in history, or maybe do they just go through space? I don't know. I, I, I thought there was a little of that here, but um, they they use their MacGuffin as the phone booth, and then they said that they shooting it. They had a phone booth, evidently a real phone booth, but to me, this one looks a little. They, it looks like they designed it a little bigger to fit everybody in at certain points. It doesn't yeah. look like a regular size phone booth because I think you and I could barely fit into a regular size phone booth. But this one, it seems like it fits the two or three of them comfortably. And then by the time, you know, near the end, you have so many people. But they said they had it up on a gimbal and they, they said it was like a death ride, they would call it, because it was just gaff taped on this thing going. And they didn't know, they didn't know what the circuits of time were yet because it hadn't been CGI created. Yeah. Um, animated. Well, that, that one is definitely bigger where they're kind of standing half out of it that's yeah. definitely like a bigger phone booth but they had a couple of them and they talked about uh how they're shooting in arizona which is hot as balls and sure. all these guys are like in you know like wool uh you yeah. know period garb that they'd all have to jam into this phone booth and it just like smelled <laughs> because they're all like sweating inside this hot phone booth there's no air circulation and they're all like just sweating in like these old uh period uh outfits and uh so apparently the they, they called booth, it a death box the death the uh the phone booth was definitely uh, very fragrant in most of those scenes um but uh yeah uh and, it also, and uh Alex winter complains it's like you know most of the time it's like this weird medium shot like it's very rare that you see them all jammed in there in the long shot. So he's like, it could have been half a phone booth so that we could get some air circulation in there. There's no reason that but they didn't even realize jam into, the, jam into this tiny phone booth for every scene. Yeah, they have a funny quote where they're saying like, uh, you know, any. This is I think Winter is saying this. He says anything that involved the circuits of time did not go as planned because it was such a rickety piece of crap. There were nine or ten of us teetering on this thing duct taped to a hydraulic unit against a green screen in a studio in Arizona. It was like a death ride canoe from the worst carny ride you've ever been on. So, um, you know, them, them moving about, like, you know, and then trying to have to interact with nothing, and then later they're going to add all that circuits of time and post this 
is interesting. But I completely, since it had been so long since I'd seen it, I completely forgot all that CGI that has a very Lawnmower Man-esque kind of a look to it because that's around the same time, kind of yeah. by a couple of years. So I think that works great, too, because it's not overused. So it's completely believable for me. You know, I mean, it looks dated, but it, it looks perfect for what it's being used for, you know. Um, and then, you know, we didn't go through what the really, we kind of went through what the movie's about, but they go through the different time periods and they're bringing people back. And it's interesting that they leave out the very important conversations they must have to have with all these people. One, who they are, what's going on. Two, convincing them because everybody seems miraculously on board, even Genghis Khan of all people. They're able to convince so that he's helping them abduct, abduct people, <laughs> Lincoln and stuff, you know, so that, yeah. and, and so everyone's like, they're, they're able to step out of their, their time, whatever's going on in their personal lives, understand the concept of time travel, what's happening, and then be like, sure, we'll help you out for your book report. You know, it's like, or, or what school is. So it, it does have that kind of, uh, you know, you, we don't really have to go through that. that that's yeah. just accepted. That's just the, well, yeah. A, a, but it's a, also you like you know the other thing that gets, that makes me chuckle is like, hey, you know, they lower Genghis Khan with a Twinkie, you yeah. know, and you just know. like in frame a hand in a frame with a Twinkie, or when they knock on the door at Abraham Lincoln's, it's like Candy Graham. <laughs> <laughs> He's like I'm putting his hat on, like, you know. <laughs> and I didn't know this is the third appearance of Genghis Khan and Lincoln together. There's the the Star Trek episode. And then there's another movie from more recently that they're on. So the, who knew that the two of them coming together, you know? Uh, and I don't remember in the second movie who they bring back um, for Bogus Journey at well, the end. I know they so have much, those... it's, not a, it's not as much about time travel, right? It's about like traveling from heaven and hell and, and stuff. And Is they, that what they're because they, they find the alien the... <laughs> station in the second? Oh, one. that's the two people. Yeah, it's less about yeah. Uh, time travel it's funny something i never thought about in terms of movies is a couple of months ago before covid or sometime last year i was having dinner here in the city with uh, a friend from twitter who uh, is one of the co-hosts of that uh movies from hell podcast that I, i've guessed it on a couple of times uh dan pullen and uh he and i were having dinner and we were, i don't remember what the concept of the conversation was like what we were talking about but he pointed out that like Sometimes there's movies where, uh, because we don't know what, like, Lincoln sounded like. So for him, like, Lincoln sounds like the Lincoln from this movie. So, like, when Daniel Day-Lewis plays him, it's like, that's not what Lincoln sounds like. He sounds like four score and seven minutes Seven ago. years ago, <laughs> we brought forth our Party followers. on, dudes. Yeah, exactly. It's just so silly, but it's uh, but, great. It's it's it's. But it is like you don't think about it. But like that was probably for him or us. Like our one, you know, one, for many people of our generation, our first performance of Lincoln. So in a way, like as opposed to going to the the, the halls of the, the Disney thing, you know, we're judging the, every other Lincoln portrayed in, <laughs> in the medium against that guy. Which yeah, is kind of funny. It's not like young Henry Fonda or um, what's his name too that played him, um, and, and 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 it's also you know funny that they, um, uh, oh, what was I going to say? I lost my complete train of thought. When when they they, they get him back, oh, when they're going to th everyone gets arrested at the mall, and it's this big big old experience. I mean, Billy the Kid shooting people with his gun, <laughs> they're shooting up in the air, and everyone just running for their lives. Genghis Khan's 
beating the crap out of security. You get that security guards from Commando. Like, they have their own squad at the mall. And so they get all get locked up. And then it's like, it, I almost feel like they were, like, writing themselves into traps. And literally, they just have the, the actors talking out to, to figure out how. And then that's just, we'll come back and we'll put the thing there. And that's how it'll work. Just remember, to, you know, where would I put the keys? Over here. You know, and, I mean, it's, it's funny that they add the little bit about, you know, the whole movie. There's been the joke about where are my keys? And it's because he, they took them already. But um, the thing with the, you know, the cassette tape and having it be on the other side of the, 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 the uh, squad room and people, no one else hearing it except the dad. And um, the dad's kind of a hard ass, the cop, and he's a he's the, he's junior, so um, Keanu's the third, and then he's going to be sending him to military school in freaking Alaska, and it seems like it doesn't matter what uh, he's going to get on the test. He's kind of like already like, no, you're leaving. I've already booked the plane. I don't care what happens. When yeah, you know, Keanu just thinks it's going to hinge on him passing that they're going to cancel the flight. But dad's like, I don't care by this point. You already suck, you know. <laughs> um, and the yeah. beginning of the movie, it's funny because. We have that opening sequence, almost like Back to the Future, where we're introduced to like um, uh, Michael J. Fox. You have the two of them jamming out, recording, trying to make a video, and they're literally a garage band, which is of that era. You know, the garage bands in their garage, and you know, like what you end up the grunge guys and like Nirvana and everybody come out of. But it's like they're doing all that before school, so they're not getting to school late, so to speak, that we know of. Maybe they are a little bit, but that means they're getting up super early. They're so committed to their craft that they're either sleeping over, coming over at five in the morning to just, and they're not drinking or getting high. They're just jamming out like Wayne and Garth might be yeah. from Wayne's world before they're able to then, Oh, we got to go to school. And then all of a sudden you have like the power of love start, you know, when they're like on skateboards, you know, getting, you know, which leads yeah. me, I guess it's a good point that they had original, they had an opening that was originally slated to be here. That was going to be this big dance sequence, which I guess when it's explained, sounds pretty cool where it was going to be in their heads that they're so in touch with the music or their, their, their minds so in the clouds that they were going to be waiting at the bus stop for the school, the school bus. And they were going to start this big sequence where they were going to dance and air guitar and play and people else. I guess there's going to be other people in the background. It was going to be like almost like one of these classical musical musicals yeah. sequences. And apparently they which even I think rehearsed is pretty cool. for it. You know, yeah, I mean, it seems like there was a lot of, because they, neither one of them knew how to dance. So they had to actually go and do, there was weeks of them either doing the rehearsals on whatever set they're on for whatever scene they're shooting. They're stopping and doing a half hour, 45 minutes of the rehearsal. And then they were going to a local dance studio in Arizona, either in Scottsdale or Phoenix, to rehearse so that they would do this opening sequence. And as of recently, I guess, Alex Winter found an old hard drive and you could go online and you could see he, he uploaded po pictures of this dance sequence, which evidently, because of the fate of Dilo De Laurentiis, um, uh, what's the name of that? DEG, the name of the company. When that went under, a lot of this footage is is supposedly just lost to the ages of time. So we may never see any of this. But uh, there was this big opening sequence, which I thought might have been really cool. It might have also set the stage. Yeah. But I guess they realize when you had. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to talk about through, about the production. We can probably hit it if there are. But when they get finished, the, the, the rough cut of this movie is like two hours and 25 minutes, they said. And the running time now is only like an hour and a half. Yeah. So that's a crap load to cut out. Yeah. Uh, There's from also, the original, uh, which is, where I think, where your John the Surf comes in. You know, those guys, they had shot all that because he's evidently still in the credits. So they must have just deleted all those sequences with that guy. 
There's also uh, there was a different ending originally, which is the presentation happens in the classroom, not in the auditorium. And more uh, realistic. Apparently, there are stills from that as well. And basically, the uh, the concept of it was Bill and Ted bring all those people to the classroom, and then they kind of just like sit down, and then each person steps forward and delivers basically their presentation one by one and they were shooting it and uh you know Alex Winter talks about how like he just didn't even know what to do with themselves because like Keanu Reeves and him were just sitting there watching like they don't do anything in that scene and apparently it broke for lunch or they shot a day and they didn't finish it and they just all got together and they said like look this isn't working like it's totally anticlimactic we've gone through all this trouble of like having like creating this team like this family unit with all of them interacting with each other and now none of them are interacting with each other at all and bill and ted aren't really doing anything so i guess they called the people that at de Laurentiis company uh whoever was heading deg yeah, yeah like the people that were heading this and they said look we've already shot for hours on this it's just not working like we don't want to waste any more time or film finishing this because it's just it's not going to work can we retool it and and reach and shoot a new ending and so basically what they did was like okay let's it's got to be more climactic so let's put it in like the auditorium where it's like a bigger deal and then basically the big thing so scary (laughs) (laughs) but basically the big thing that they did was insert bill and ted into the presentation which is like ted's ted's going to uh translate for socrates and and uh bill is gonna you know spar off with joan of arc and ted's gonna get you know examined by freud and so they created this huge montage oh i forgot about freud but just making it much bigger and inserting uh bill and ted into all the mayhem so that it became a more interactive thing for all the characters because the way it was was just kind of stagnant which i guess seemed good on paper but once they started to execute it just seemed totally anticlimactic for the movie that they were they've set up for the ending it's much more realistic i think for in you know to have the the presentation or whatever i mean because they almost at the end of it uh the teacher who who, uh, their history teacher who's had been in a slew of films as well he kind of says your your paper needs to be done but i I don't remember there's any implication that it's going to have like a big a presentation of it so it's much more realistic for them to do it inside the classroom but i guess it lends itself to the world of bill and ted to have it be like they're doing like a rock concert they turn the lights off and they're like you know get ready you know and they, they have control of the of the house lights and all that and they're ready to go and then they do this big and again they have everybody on board to take them out of their lives to help them um and there's another no weird fact i think they say aside from uh Jesus, everybody that they, they that they take with them, that they grab, also died violent deaths. You know, aside from I think, um, what is it? They say Freud maybe committed suicide, uh, if if I'm correct. And um, uh, Napoleon, there's rumor that that could have been arsenic poisoning. But um, oh, then you know, Genghis Khan and Beethoven were the only ones that died of natural causes. Where you know, Socrates was murdered, Joan of Arc murdered Billy the Kid at Abraham Lincoln, uh, either executed or assassinated. 
uh, oh, Freud was a, died by assistant suicide. Uh, and then Bonaparte, when he, I think he was in exile under house arrest, was supposedly could have been uh, arsenic poisoning. So you, you do, it do lends to the people like me who come up with other planes of, of view. Yeah. Maybe somehow they caused that. You know, that, I don't know. Uh, but that's interesting. But it's funny that they, all, they get them all involved to help them with this big sequence. And then the other B side of the story is that they, they grab Napoleon, give him off to Duncan, who seems like a, just a little cool little brother. And then he brings him <laughs> to all these places. And then he's able to get into the water side. He's having fun at the waterside park and all this other stuff, bowling, like you said, all this. You know, he understands the concept of bowling, so he's cheating. He's adding the, the score <laughs> up. And he's, you know, it's like all these little <laughs> underhanded things or. <laughs> Just this silliness. Yeah. It's just funny. Uh, uh, another just delete. And then after your yeah, another deleted scene. I was going to say, which there's at least one still of, is they're actually he, they take the princesses to the prom. That's but after I, the, the, the the sequence. But I, but I guess they realize really like after the presentation, really the movie was over, and so uh, they ended up just shooting the scene. Rufus is also there in the in the still and the girls are in their princess outfits. So maybe that prom scene is uh it's hard to tell but maybe that prom scene was instead of the last scene that we have in the movie where he he brings the girls to the garage. Um, oh yeah, okay. Um, these are yours. <laughs> you know, I'm just judging by the still. I mean, I I didn't yeah. hear any information, but I think These Rufus are also in- stills that Alex just discovered on his hard drive, Alex Winter, that you see them like in shorts and tuxes up top. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and then you have that sequence where they're at the garage where George Carlin jumps on and does a little, you know, Eddie Van Halen, Steve I kind of guitar action. And that was done by Stevie Salalis, S A L A S, who was the one who did all the guitar work and wrote the guitar work in the movie. Um, and all that stuff was huge in the 80s. Van Halen, Steve I, all those guys being able to do Slasher, all the guy, the guitar gods of the era. So that was really, really, really big. And as I said, that was like my, my best friend's brother, older brother's generation of those guys who were big guitar heads and stuff like that. Um, so they redo the movie. And then what ends up happening is the movie gets shelved because they shoot it in 87, 88. And then, uh, uh, what is it, DEG? De Laurentiis's company ends up going bankrupt, and then there's a there's a worry that the movie may not come out, may not be finished, or may not even come out. And then there was a chance it was just going to go to cable vision and just be like a direct to TV movie. But then I guess the people when when the Delo De Laurentiis's company breaks apart, the executives go over to they make Nelson Entertainment, and then those guys just grab they get the rights to the negative for nothing, and they're the ones who they uh, get Orion to erase, uh, release it, and then that's how the movie gets finally released like a year later than it was supposed to be. So yeah, it's like, I'm, you know, they, they thought there was a, a peril. Yeah, I mean, apparently, you know, what Dion said is apparently the story, but I don't know so much about if the De Laurentiis people went over to this other company, but uh, what happened was they did say, well, like, well, if you're not going to do anything with it, I mean, if you're just going to release it to TV or they were talking about straight to video, but then like... It's not even worth the cost to, to make the tapes. So maybe we'll just sell it to HBO or some other cable channel. Uh, but somehow they, they talked, they decided, because they never held like a public screening even for, um, you know, to take notes or whatever to see what things worked. So they, they, 
they uh, had a public screening and apparently like the audience just loved it. They laughed at all the parts that they were supposed to laugh at. And they were the grabbing theme- people from the malls and they were having screenings at malls and stuff. Yeah. And uh, so it just they realized that like people like this movie. And so they found this little company that Dion was talking about. I'm not sure. I didn't hear that uh, those people came from De Laurentiis, but they did buy the whole film for like a million dollars or something, which is not a lot considering that it costs eight million or so to make or whatever the budget there's was. There's a uh, there's a Hollywood Reporter article and um, uh, what's his face Herrick notes that some of the executives I guess went from DEG moved over to Nelson, so he says. So basically, they got the negative rights for basically nothing, and they went on to finish it through Nelson, and then got Orion. But maybe there was, like you said, there was a a, a, a partnership. Maybe that those couple people were the ones that knew that yeah. this was sitting on a shelf somewhere and got this out. But it could have never came out, never been finished, or like you said, going right to video. It could have been one of these movies that you know was forgotten about. But it was also like delayed, like a year or something. Like the, the, the actors, nobody knew anything about it. They were kind of moved on. You know, last they heard was like this might not come out, or this probably isn't even going to get released. Yeah, it's just and because of the, the bankruptcy of DEG, that's why all these other um, scenes are supposedly lost. You know, the the prom, the original ending, and the original beginning. Something similar happened with Army of Darkness with De Laurentiis' company, except for it was a lawsuit because uh, it was Universal and De Laurentiis. Uh, made Army of Darkness, but then De Laurentiis sued Universal. I think it was Universal over the fact that they were making Silence of the Lambs or whoever was making Silence of the Lambs. De Laurentiis sued them because he's like, I own Hannibal Lecter because I did Manhunter. And, well, that's interesting. Uh, and because of that lawsuit, Army of Darkness, which is the third Evil Dead movie, uh, that got shelved for like a year or, or maybe even two because it was like, well, wow. we're not releasing anything by De Laurentiis' company while this lawsuit is happening. So it was a similar fate with uh, Army of Darkness, except for unfortunately for Army of Darkness, it didn't really find its audience in the, in the audience of the box office. It didn't really find its audience until video. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then also on pay-per-view, I remember that was a big pay-per-view movie. Uh, my dad like, there's this crazy movie on with this guy going back in time, and you got to watch this movie. And another time travel Walmart. movie. Hey, another, yeah, you're right. Another, another, you know, uh, kind of concept like that. Um, so then, um, this comes out. And it does huge, right? It's like a forty million dollar on like an eight, maybe million dollar budget or something like that. They get, they get, they make a crap load of money. It's a success, and it and it begets a sequel in 1991, Bogus Journey, which I saw in the theater. And there is a comic book adaptation of this first one. They do a they do a uh, a Game Boy, a Nintendo game, an Atari game, and then um, after let's see, uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey comes out in '91, but the Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventures, the animated series, ran first on CBS in 1990. And which is really interesting is that I never watched it. <laughs> That's the really interesting thing. No, the real interesting <laughs> thing is that season one. Features the voices of Alex Winter, Keanu Reeves, and um, Carlin as everybody. So I think that's great that the cast came to the. Yeah. You hardly ever get that. Apparently, you know, that first once in a was, while you do. That first season was done by Hanna Barbera, I think, and they all voiced oh. the characters. And then it got sold. That to, makes sense. And then it got sold to uh, maybe it was Filmation or it's one of those other uh, yeah. famous and then it animation ran on Fox studios. Kids. And then it yeah. came back with the voices of the guy of the people who then played them in the live action show. 
yeah, Evan Richards and Christopher Kennedy uh, from the live. So then season two of the animated series has them and it runs on Fox Kids. Uh, and then there's a live action series which comes out, only has seven episodes, comes out the summer of 92. So I would assume that's because of the success of Bogus Journey. And that has Evan Richards and Christopher Kennedy. For some reason, that completely flew by my radar. I, don't, I watched the opening to it um, before we did the cast, and I vaguely remember any of that. And then when you watch it, the gentleman playing Ted... His haircut to me looks more like of a like a of a like a bowl haircut than kind of like Keanu Reeves. You know, kind of he kind of looks like a I don't know. He, he kind of looks more like a guy out of like uh, Buck Rogers or something. You know, yeah, like like, a little more of a, so, of a Mo Howard look going. Yeah, exactly. A little a little longer of Mo Howard grew, grew his hair out a little bit, <laughs> shoulder length. Um, and well, then that's hard too because they to me they don't look so much like the original characters, but they're trying to keep the same genuine innocence and all that but they're still like bruh dude whoa rufus <laughs> ah you know triumphant so it's hard yeah. so i guess you could see why in an era of ferris bueller's you know they ha- he had a show and uh parker lewis can't lose you know that uh, herman's head also this movie, weird this science kind of, tv show also weird science with a really beautiful girl playing uh who went on to maybe angel or i forget what she went on to do but there was an era there which we just talked about. I feel like that, like where Swamp Thing on USA was around on at that time. You had a lot of them looking for motion picture feature content to turn into a TV series. Talked about FX, you know, FX. That was it, yeah, because FX did it. So um, then this, there was a DC Comics did did the did the uh, the comic book adaptation, but then Marvel picked it up and did a uh, a proper series on it. Uh, I guess there was conjecture that in the mid '90s that Biodome was going to be the th- was going to be the thir- was the third sequel that then they turned into its own movie, which evidently people Alex Winter says that's not true. Um, that does remind me that they say Pauly Shore did audition for uh, this, so that would have been a very different movie had Pauly Pauly Shore been in it because I feel like he would have been injecting a lot more of his Pauly Shoreness into this yeah. as opposed to these guys. So you would have got a little more of the drug-induced references than, you know, you get here. So uh, that would have been interesting. And then, let's see, they did uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Comic Book, which lasted, I guess, 12 issues uh, by Marvel. And then this, we said the cartoon series. You got a novelization, you said, from the second movie. From um, Bogus Journey, yeah. Uh, Bogus Journey. There's a cameo by Primus in Bogus Journey because they're they're on there playing. I think um, uh, what are they? They're playing uh, Tommy the Cat before. Like they're the act before they have to go on. Uh, when when Bill comes, Bill and Ted come up with the Reaper. Uh, so then for years, there's always been this idea of bring doing a third movie, and I guess it's because uh, you know Keanu was doing other things, as was Winter, they, and they they couldn't figure out something they were going to agree on. And it's always been an urban legend for years, and it's been, what now, almost, Jesus, almost 30 years. And then finally, you know, I bet in 2010, 2012, people were speculating that there was that Matheson and Solomon were working on a third script. And then in April 2011, that they said there was a draft. And then Keanu confirmed in March of 2012 that him and Winter both finished the script because the four of them wrote it, I guess. It was... Winter, Keanu, and 
Well, I guess they all had script meetings, and then I think the Solomon and Matheson did the legwork and actually wrote it. And then at that point, there was no Green Reaper in it, but William Sadler showed interest in coming back. So since that news, if we look at the uh, teasers for the new movie, Bill and Ted Face the Music, um, there is, Sadler is, looks like he's in it for death. So that, I love that they brought him back. And supposedly, I guess they got the director. Is that still true from Galaxy Quest? Uh, uh, Dean Paris. Persat, I believe so. To to um the, to do the new one, which also lends a great level of of interestingness to it, uh, and that's supposed to come out what soon enough, isn't it? Yeah, it was supposed to be sometime in mid August, but now I think as of when we record this, I think it's been pushed to September first. Yeah, um, so it's either August or September of 2020. Because, um, uh, you know, what's going on with COVID is supposed to come out theatrically. And now I think what the plan is on September 1st, it's going to come out in theaters that are open and also on demand at the same time. A co- ah. uh, kind of co-release there. And um, I had the pleasure of actually riding and driving in the new movie van. There's a, uh, in, the, in the movie coming up, they have like a... Uh, kind of a Chevy van that they're using as, I guess, their band, because it says Wild Silence on the side, and I got to sit in it and drive it at this event I was just at while I was filming this movie. So I can post a picture or two of me in it, and that screen used in the movie. So that's exciting. That um, And I guess the new, from what I read, I didn't want to look at too much about it. I guess the basic concept, spoiler alert, for the new face, the movie Face the Music is that they're realizing that they haven't written the music yet that's going to change the world. So then they're kind of coming to this dilemma of they have to try to write this epicness that's going to, you know, and then also that they have kids and then there's a whole other. So that's what I've heard about this, which sounds pretty good. You know, it's interesting seeing them playing the roles again because of their ages and them still looking like, because hey, I felt <laughs> like for, for me personally, like Keanu had to grow out of that. Like for years, I only thought, which I think is something we I brought up on John Wick. I only thought about him as Bill and Ted or Point Break, you know, and then even for me, he was kind of stretched personally in Matrix, but I've grown to have such a admiration for him and, you know, and, and understanding and liking him. So uh, it is interesting him going back to the well and doing something that, you know, was kind of his, his breakout role aside from, for at least to, to me and my people my age, yeah. you know, as opposed to my own Private Idaho and those other movies he did back then. So that'll be fun. Uh, and they had a serial for a little bit, which evidently was kind of crazy because they said that, um, you know, they didn't get any residuals or anything from the from the merchandising. So they would go out and they would see randomly like, oh, their face is on a cereal box or a, a lunch box. And they're like, wow, that's kind of crazy. And um, so Reeves says that's an example of it going ladder, vertical, yeah. you know. So, so, so you're saying I should have found a box of Bill and Ted cereal for us to eat on this episode. Well, evidently, the other problem with it was, <laughs> according to Alex Winter, was that that it was made by Purina. So they were like, that's your first problem, is that you got Purina, who makes dog food and pet food, doing your breakfast cereal. So that's kind of a hard sell to, to, to parents. And then it had a very weird taste, they said, or something like that. So it didn't last well, very long. But that should have definitely been something that we opened and ate <laughs> on this cast. Yeah, I mean, in we, the, did, in the Batman we did it in Batman. Maybe for Bogus Journey, I'll dig up a box of Bill and Ted's cereal. An open, an unopened <laughs> box of Bill and Ted's uh, um, Bogus Journey or cereal. And then they gave away one of the phone booths, which I think is pretty cool. Nintendo Power, I think in conjunction with maybe MTV, 
But Nintendo Power, the old Nintendo magazine, gave away uh, to a contest winner uh, that was screen used in Bogus Journey to some gentleman in Mississippi, which is, I wonder, I wonder if he still has it, which is pretty interesting. Did, and did then you- S- S- uh, San Dimas, uh, they had a 50 years uh, celebration some years ago in 2010, from uh, 1960 to 2010, and they, their, their celebration slogan was San Dimas, 1960 to 2010, and an excellent adventure. Did you, uh, cool. did you have a, a subscription to Nintendo Power? Nintendo Power? Uh, no, I used to get it, get it borrowed off my friends because I, was, uh, I didn't have enough gaming in me to do that. But I would either go to the store, read it while I was there. They had those cheat guides, so you can look at that. Or uh, several of my friends had the Nintendo Power. I did buy the Batman issue of Nintendo Power when Batman 89's game came out and I remember that vividly going through and then you could see I think it even had fold outs of the Batmobile and stuff like that you know to get the kids attention um, so I that's had, pretty cool I did that for like at least a year I think I had a subscription to Nintendo Power the other thing I wanted to say is because it's become on social media it's become like a running thing to mention or a joke on social media for our listeners uh, and Dion's thing as a kid thinking that the movie had to have the title i think i believe they say excellent adventure twice in this movie dude i hope they say bogus journey in the next one <laughs> didn't somebody just say that we, we some somebody tweeted us and they said that at some point they say the name in the movie and i was like yes they say the name the title so it just reinforces that every movie has to have the title in it somewhere i think even if it's implied i think lincoln might say it during the presentation uh if i'm not mistaken i could be mistaken but it's said during the presentation and then it's said at the end where like bill or ted's like we've had the most excellent adventure that's really cool good for them see crossing <laughs> it off my list um and evidently there was a halloween ride going f- jesus for 15 to 20 years which sounded pretty cool that they had at uh, universal studios and it would be one of these things where it was a stage show so every year they would uh from what i read is they would update it so whatever the villain that was popular that year that came out in whatever movie bill and ted would have to face off against them and then in 2013 the show was canceled uh, in the middle of its run following complaints of homophobic humor which is um, not very uh, funny or advisable so that ended its run geez maybe 15 years from 1999 to, to to 2013 it was called Bill and Ted's Excellent Halloween Adventure Ride that would have been pretty cool to check that out um, so yeah, uh, and, and I'm actually excited to see the new one. That's going to be cool. And that was what we were trying to do here. We were trying to do the old-fashioned coincide with the movie's release to talk about this one. But because of everything going on with COVID in the world, we kind of um, we didn't know when we were going to in- interject it. So we said, screw it. Uh, let's, uh, for darn sake, let's just put it out now because it'll be our July episode in 2020 because it's either coming out this next month in August or September. Yeah. So... Um, then there was a board game in 2016. Let's not forget the board game, which it sounds like it was one of those crowdfunded ones where it's like yeah. if enough people put in, they'll make it. I did that with Labyrinth. And then uh, little known facts, I guess there was a British VHS cover box in 1997. And on the back of the box, there was pictures of the prom, which are not, deleted scenes aren't even in the movie. Oh. So what a damn teaser for people in Britain like this wasn't even in the movie yeah. they're not going to say it. they're like this I say it in the movie I think la- so, um, last year or the year before one of those record companies Mondo or 
one of those i would guess maybe it's mondo they released the soundtrack and i don't but i don't know if it was the soundtrack like the songs or the score by david newman uh could Mm -hmm. have been either uh but david newman's score is kind of buried in this movie of with all this the actual songs which is a great song track i mean a lot of great songs in this uh the david newman score when it when he does it must have been a fun score because he gets to do like some western music some you know, he gets to do music of each of the eras, and uh, David Newman he did, he scored "Throw Mama from the Train," he, uh, "Heather's," nice uh, "Little Monsters," the uh, wow, that's something to do on here. The Freshman, which is a movie I've always loved with Matthew Broderick. Yeah, uh, "Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead," "Honeymoon in Vegas," "The Mighty Ducks," "Hoffa." Which is one of Dion's movies. I, uh, I love, I love that one of my favorites, but I, I do like it. It has a sweet place in my heart. Uh, Sad Lot. He did the Coneheads movie, Flintstones, wow. Wow. Tommy Boy, uh, Galaxy Quest, Serenity, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, uh, this ever? I, yeah, I love Serenity. I mean, Dion was kind of the one no. that. I mean, I actually saw Serenity before I saw Firefly, but Dion was kind of the one that talked me into watching Firefly. And uh, I ended up falling in love with that show, but uh, so David you made Newman, out with it. And you slept with it the first night you you had it. I was like, babe, don't, babe, I was like, Blake, <laughs> don't don't sleep with it the first night you have it. <laughs> Get, buy it a drink first, take it out. But uh, yeah, good times. Um, good times, great. Old that's days. great. And uh, two heads are better than one. I feel like that. See that, that that appears in here, but then it's written by Nelson, Ricky Nelson. I'm a big um, Ozzy and Harriet fan. Everyone. Hopefully knows who Ricky Nelson is, but his son were the group Hanson, which was Gunner Hanson, and I forget the other Nelson. brother's name. Uh, and then yeah, th- they ended up making that that group Nelson. They had the long blonde hair that they were uh, really hip for a minute there. And their sister, is, oh Matthew Nelson and Gunner Hanson, and they're the sons of Ricky Nelson. They wrote Two Heads Are Better Than One. Uh, let's see, which is credited the Power Tool. Uh, and then they ended up having a, you know, they ended up having a group called Nelson for a while. Their sister is, uh, oh, what's her name? But she's in Father Dowling Mysteries. She's the nun. And I forget her what her, her first name is, but her, you know, she's a Nelson as well. But I always feel like I know what version of Two Heads or Better Than One do I know? Is it this version? Two Heads. Or did, I wonder if Nelson reco- recorded it. And then I just know their version because I know, a, but I always thought it was like older from like the 50s or 60s, but I don't know. Um, and then lastly, as we close out, evidently, we've talked about this in other casts before, uh, rumor has it from all of our German fans that the German dub of this movie is pretty infamous, where there's some things that couldn't be translated. They couldn't translate dude or excellent. So they'd have, you know, I, I don't have very good German, but uh, Hashni. I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that nearly right. That's dude. Grantan Stark, probably pronounced that wrong too, is excellent. And uh, they had all these different weird things they couldn't say right. So there's like the scene where at the beginning, Mr. Ryan asks who Joan of Arc was. And then uh, the, Ted replies, Noah's wife. But in the German dub, they say the uncle of football. <laughs> and then later on, there the scene when the two the two confront each other, the, the two pairs, and they say, if you're really us, what are you thinking of right now? And, you know, the joke is 69. In the German dub, it's supposed to be, they change it. If you're really us, 
which famous toothpick would you, are you thinking of right now? And I guess in Germany, toothpick means celebrity in, in the parlance. And they all say, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, so I guess this is one of these movies where, you know, it, it kind of has a wacky translation for people, you know, when you go to other languages and stuff, which I feel like we've, we've discussed before here on other, with other movies. Just the stuff doesn't literally translate well. Um, but, yeah, this was fun doing, and it's, and, it's, and it's fun. It's just one of these nice, you know, kind of mindless movies that, you know, the plot's kind of simple. You know, you, it, it flies right by. It's only an hour and a half. Uh, it's, it's really nice, lighthearted. You don't have to worry about any kind of serious. You can have any child of any age watch it, which I love. Um, you know, uh, I, I do have a stronger affinity for Bogus Journey, but having said that i haven't seen it in 25 years yeah so i wonder how that still holds up but i remember really enjoying all those jokes and you know especially william sadler and it even props to william sadler whose parent or his mom i think just died because of covid which is terrible so god rest william sadler's uh mother <laughs> bringing it all down um <laughs> and on that note <laughs> so yeah on that note any any uh closing words about you and um and good old um uh bill and ted uh, no, I think I pretty much did everything. It's just it's a movie that I've always been a big fan of. I watch it every time it's on. You know, unlike, you know, you said you haven't seen this movie in forever. I, I watch this movie at least once a year, probably. So, oh uh, really? Yeah. So it's not that far. Uh, I'm not that far removed from it. Uh, I just have a good time with it. I'm oh, glad that's nice. Got around yeah. to doing it. Well, that's cool. That's that's very sweet. So. Uh, that's fun. And then we have, let's see, we're entering the end of the summer season. We've got another uh, episode next month. And then uh, after that, we're going to have our big um, uh, anniversary, which will be fun, our epic, uh, which we're, we're already planning and special mail ordering everything and putting it together with, with airplane glue and marathon. Yeah, it's going to be a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of stuff. A big, big, big... Um, uh, It'd be very interesting, so it'd be fun. I think we have a, a good lineup, you know, and then we have even ideas for Halloween and stuff like that. So we, we, we're, already, we're already planning out our, our end of summer into fall, which is going to be very exciting. Uh, so uh, we talked about Score to Death. You, what's going on with that? You, you have the new book coming out. Hopefully it's still going to come out in the fall but, uh, or in the winter, but uh, we'll see. You never know. But in the meantime, if you haven't yet, you can check out Score to Death Conversations with some of Horror's Greatest Composers, the original book. That's available on Amazon or for me directly at scoretodeath.com. I've thrown, over the last couple of months, I've thrown up a couple of new episodes of Score to Death, the podcast, one with Bill Conti, uh, and then kind of nice. a, a piggybacked off of Bill Conti's, and I, did, I interviewed Ted Nugent. Because uh, we, nice. we talked about uh, the movie Nomads, that uh, Bill Conti scored that movie with Bill, Ted Nugent. So then I talked about Ted Nugent. Uh, I talked about Nomads with Ted Nugent. And I'm in the middle of editing another episode uh, for Scored to Death, the podcast. But, uh, and I've also been doing the... Uh, so I've been sitting in on some of these watch parties for uh, In Search of Darkness documentary and In Search for Tomorrow documentary and Dion and I have just sat in and talked about Escape from New York for uh, their Sunday. That's fun. For their Sunday uh, afternoon here in you know on the East Coast anyway uh, watch parties. So those have been fun. I don't know how many we uh, um, or we're going to do but uh, we've been keeping busy. And I think that's pretty monumental because that was the first time you and I actually 
jointly participated in a in a you know it was I had it was a big thing I had to get a permission slip and ask my mom and my mom didn't know who he was and you know how your parents are when you want to sleep over somebody else's house even though it's Sunday afternoon I'm like yeah. why why can't you just drop me off over there but so that was pretty exciting for us yeah um at the time um let's see and then I have uh my new book hopefully coming out next year called Morse PI um that should be out hopefully the beginning of 2021 uh that that'll be exciting i have my book blood in the streets you can get that on um ebook paperback or audiobook on amazon or any place else you want to find your books um let's see you can contact me i can get you an order a signed copy if you like i can mail that out to you and then uh at the end of the year hopefully uh, i'm going to be appearing in a new film called stand on it which is a john schneider bo duke from dukes of hazard uh it's a movie he produced directed and stars in and it's kind of a homage to smoking and the bandit so it's very tongue-in-cheek a smoking and the bandit-esque movie and he is playing the burt reynolds bandit character in it named duke and i am playing the idiot son to um the jackie gleason sheriff character so i'm playing the junior-esque character in it and uh that was why I was in a police car that had no roof and no driver's side door on it, doing all these stunts and stuff like that with uh, legends like Jack Gill, Lance Turner, and um, uh, Ted Barba. And uh, Tyrus, who I know from my day job, former wrestler, political commentator now, he is going to be playing the my father in it and the Jackie Gleason Sheriff, which should be kind of fun. And our scenes we did together are hilarious because him and I have a good rapport and it's all because of him that I got this landed this role because he suggested me to Schneider saying, you know, I want to have somebody I'm, I, I'm, I'm funny with and I get along with. And that worked out great. And me and Schneider bonded instantly. And he's a really, 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 really nice guy and really down to earth, really awesome. So that was awfully exciting. And then while I was down there, he, he did an event, which was all, adhere to social distancing and uh you know a lot of not a lot of people came out because of covid but it was very safe and with everything we were doing and they had a car show that was there and that was the reason why i was able to uh see the new screen used um bill and ted's face the music van that was down there and i was able to get into it and they had a whole bunch of cars there and i sent blake a couple stuff and you said you instantly recognized the fall guy truck that was down there and that was a screen used, the old Lee Majors Fall Guy show. That was a screen used truck, and they were showing it to me. And everybody, like on the dash and on the glove box, they're signing everything and on the sun visor. And uh, they showed me the car. The, the truck is so high. And if you look, they built it to, to, to do the stunts on the show. So the engine is center, uh, center vehicle under where the people sit for the idea of keeping the car properly balanced. It would go up in the air and, you know, I guess keep it from getting really damaged and would come down and do these stunts. So it was just phenomenal. And then, you know, getting to see all these different General Lees that were used or a Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit or the Pontiac, the, the, the cop car, as well as the, the Snowman's uh, 18-wheeler. It was really a, a fun time. But that movie, Stand On It, which is literally means like, you know, you're standing on the gas, kind of like putting the pedal to the floor. Uh, stand on it should be out hopefully by the end of the year you and tell, that'll be fun and that was the project that I was talking about uh, at the beginning did you tell Schneider no. that Tom Wopat ruined a uh, a screening of for a few dollars more for me no <laughs> you're right I didn't that's a funny story I should actually tell him Wopat wasn't there but I met a couple other people from Dukes of Hazard, a lot of the stuntmen and stuff but that is a really funny because I gave Blake and I, I I helped Blake pen a song 
on his album Melting Pot. What year is that? Jay Blake and the Earthquake. It was almost called Melting Pot. It's called where uh, When You Coming Home. Uh, I don't know. That oh, was... the, well, the, the, I have it. I have it as Melting Pot. So maybe you gave it to me before I bur- on, digitally. I have it. Yeah, uh, as maybe, Melting Pot. Maybe it's before I changed the title. The title of it. Yeah. Because I gave him the album to listen to, and then I said, hey, this first song on it, When You Coming Home, I said, you know, me and my friend wrote, and he performed it, so if you want to use it in the movie, feel free. So maybe the, the, that When You Coming Home, or no, that, that's not the, the it's, it's uh, what is, what's the song we wrote? Um, uh, I Ain't No Good at Loving You? Yeah, yeah. I, I Ain't No, yeah, okay. ain't, so ain't no Good was, at Loving You. I ain't no good at loving you. So that was the one I said, hey, why don't you try using that? So that's exciting, and that's how I broke my clavicle, doing <laughs> dumb stuff, jumping off a crown Vic, you know, in the rain and trying to act like I'm a stuntman, you know, and roll up fine and looking cool in my suit that Blake purchased for me. I'm wearing my 70s suit in, that I keep in my closet that Blake bought $10 for the three-piece suit and then $10 for the green shirt, and it's the best present what thing we've ever gotten right that suit and jacket. i've got so much use out of that uh, in a nutshell basically we were at a uh salvation army salvation army. and there was with mike morona and with a Michael our C. friend morona. from pete and, pete and uh i saw this suit and it was never gonna fit me so i asked dan i said go try this on because they had a fitting room <laughs> and i said do me a favor go try this on and Dion went and tried the suit on, and he came out, and it just looked so awesome. And I and uh, I said, "You should get it." And you're like, "I don't know if I want to buy some suit. Some guy is probably dead or something." I said, "Look, I, yeah, I, somebody I, died I, in the suit." I looked at the price tag, and I said, "If I, I, I will buy you this suit. All you have to do is you promise me you wear it one time." Yeah, and uh, it's been worn more than, many and, and, more than once. And at the same, uh, at, at, in the same time, we bought the the shirt which goes with it, which is it has it's a butterfly collar green shirt, so it perfectly works with the three piece suit. And this is a what is it polyester? I don't know. It is a three piece suit, and it's hot. And I'm down in Louisiana, um, you know, because of COVID, everything going on, we had to stop filming. And then once we were able to start filming again outside. Um, you know, making sure everyone's socially distancing and doing all that kind of a thing, which was in the past month. Uh, I'm down there. We were supposed to be done by the end of April, but now we're middle of July. I'm down there in this three-piece suit, and it's hot as ball. It's hotter <laughs> than a wolfman's nards. I mean, it's you think of like the worst dog days of summer in New York City or wherever you live with the humidity. That's like normal down there. And they're like, yeah. So I'm doing these takes so hot. And it's so funny. It's like in the movie, there's, um, I was saying like the, the Crown Vic, the police car we're driving was literally falling apart because we couldn't keep the thing going because of the, the, the beating it was taking. So you had all these car motorheads around, you know, jumping the car, pushing it, getting the shot. On the other side of it, the, 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 um, the wardrobe person was also a seamstress. So she was literally doing the exact same thing with the suit, keeping the suit alive. It became like a John Wick suit because I was tearing it and ripping it because I'm jumping out of the car and rolling over the hood. I'm doing all this, you know, real physical stuff. So, you know, I'm ripping the collar, the seam. So she'd have to take it and then sew it back up. And it got so hot that in between takes, they were trying to take the jacket off me to give me some, you know, some air. And I was literally ripping the, the lining was ripping out because it was sticking to, to, to my skin because I was sweating so much. So she'd have to go back, bless her heart, every time and fix it. So they've kept the suit. We're done filming. I broke my clavicle. I'm in a sling. They've kept the suit to fix it, restore it for me, and then 
dry clean it and send it back. So it's literally kind of like this battered car where, you know, I just kicked the shit out of it and it's still ticking. And I was joking with my wife. I was like, maybe I should even get buried in this damn thing. It's so awesome. You know, the suit. It's, so uh, it's just so funny how much mileage I got out of it, you know, it and the, it's going to uh, be in this movie. Because Saturday night movie sleepover it, museum. Yeah, it's going to be, but this is the, actually when we have our restaurant, you know, our, our screen used, because it's like, it's been sitting, I've never, I haven't worn it in 20 years, you know, when uh, Blake bought it for me, this is from an experience in 20, 2002, I think it was, that we, we, we all went, did, did this thing in New Haven, and went and saw a buddy guy play, and I wore it every Halloween around that time, but you don't really have a lot of excuses to wear the 70s suit, you know, so I got the damn thing dry cleaned maybe a year and a year and a half ago, and then put it in plastic in the back of the, you know, in my closet. And then serendipitously, when they asked me to be in the movie, uh, if anybody knows Smokey and the Bandit, Junior is supposed to be wearing this silly tuxedo. So they were looking for something for me to wear. And I said, well, I just got this suit dry cleaned. And I showed it to them. They're like, bring that. So I've been wearing that in my old uh, 150s, my cowboy boots. So it's just a, it's, I'm wearing everything my, of my own in the movie. It's like Mike, you know, Michael C. Maroney's doing his movies. He just wears his own uh, yeah. crazy clothes. So... Stand on it. Check it out. John Schneider, great guy. Go check his stuff out, too. He's got a lot of good stuff. And, you know, people think about how iconic that guy is, man. Dukes of Hazard, Smallville, uh, a lot of other stuff now. You know, he's uh, Have and Have Nots, that Tyler Perry show, which is doing gangbusters. So, uh, real nice guy. So, that should be out at the end of the year, and hopefully my clavicle will be fixed by then. Yes. You know, but, me and Blake uh, won't roughhouse after this. My, my, I my, when I came over, my mom was like, Blake, please take it easy with Dion because he's hurt his shoulder. He's going to get too excited. He's going to drink too much sugar. He's going to want to fight rough house, and you can't do the the dirty dancing reenactment again and break the coffee table or or yes. cut up his back straight, again. Straight to bed for us after this. Yeah, exactly. It is a late night, so. Uh, but uh, as always, you can check Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers out. We're on Facebook. We're on uh, Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're soon to be one of these days on YouTube if I can get my act together and get some time to, to put us to, 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 to acclimate to get us all uploaded up there. Uh, you could check us out on our regular site, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. You can join the conversation and talk to us online. Uh, you know, ask us questions, or if you want to suggest movies, or tell us how you like the show or how you don't like the show. Let us know. We're we're very accessible about stuff like that, and it's very fun. We'd love to have people join the community and take this big nostalgic journey with us. At, like looking back at all these fun movies that we grew up with, and um, uh, we should hopefully have a lot more in store for you, right, Blake? Hopefully. And we're also we're planning fingers new and crossed. bigger things too, you know. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed. We're, we're 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 Blake and I are talking about all these new other exciting things we're trying to figure out to do, be it from side projects or maybe just merch. You know, we're yeah. just trying to figure stuff out right now. So, so we know there's people actually who've been asking us about merch. So we're like we're trying to figure out you know maybe we can make that happen. So um, thank you very much for listening. And as always, you know, we'll see you. I guess what in a couple of weeks with all new adventure of Saturday night movie sleepovers. Uh, Party on, Blake. (laughs) Party on, yeah. Later. Excellent and triumphant journey. Later. Later.